Hello and welcome to the Movie Mouth Film and TV Podcast. On this week's not-so-spooky Halloween special, we have a jam-packed show featuring the most reviews ever, a super fun and enlightening interview with Nostalgia Plenty documentary, The Orange Years, the Nickelodeon story director Scott Barber, and a spooktacular 90s horror classic to scare the living wits out of you in our classic video store corner section. Alongside these, we'll be discussing the latest film news and trailer breakdowns. This is your co-host, Miles. And as ever, I'm joined by my co-host. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device for the mass production of shoes after the Civil War. Co-host Phil had been sent to the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist and was very much sought after when it came to documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. It was in the latter capacity that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love and she became pregnant. Hmm poor co-host Phil. The father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased co-host Phil through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. No one came to his aid, but this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby, there was an apiary, dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone naked body. Co-host Phil was stung to death by the bees. <laughs> they burned his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. On this Halloween night, listeners, say his name five times along with me while looking in the mirror and he shall appear. Are you ready, listeners? Here we go. Co-host Phil. Co-host Phil. Co-host Phil. Co-host Phil. One more. Co-host Phil. Oh, where did you come here from? I here I am. Uh, uh, Phil. All right. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Um, <laughs> I'm great, thanks. Thanks for that wonderful intro. I Sorry I laughed. I couldn't help it. <laughs> I think <laughs> mainly it was the way you said Cabrini Green. Cabrini Green. I'm not sure if it... I wasn't sure if it was your laughter or the screams of all of your victims. It was both. <laughs> How have you been, Phil? Uh, fine, thanks. Yes, very good. Very you celebrated good. a birthday this week, I believe. I did, yeah. How was that? Uh, uneventful. <laughs> it was good. It's like all other birthdays when you get older, isn't it? Well, I'm glad I asked. So, what have you been watching? <laughs> what have you been watching this week? Uh, well, I watched as I'd seen it appear on Netflix. I watched Ready Player One again, um, and I, I hadn't seen it since it was out of the cinema. I'm talking about Senor Spielbergo. Spielbergo, yeah, uh, based on the Ernest Klein book of the same name one of my mm. favorite books of all time oh and who recommended that to you phil it huh. might have been uh co-host miles oh say his name <laughs> five times and he'll recommend a book to you he will um yeah so it was it was good to see that again and i actually noticed a lot more in it this time 
and as we discussed about it before, it's very different to the book. Yeah, uh, in many ways, but it's mm-hmm. still, I think, really, really good. And no war games moment. No, no war games. But it's uh, I'm it's made me want to. I'm rereading the book now, so um, I'm doing that, and I've got the. And I had this from pre-order anyway, but I've got the, the new Ready Player Two book coming out in oh. next month, isn't it? November at some point. Isn't so that what that... you shout as you go to the toilet? <laughs> Ready Player Two. Yeah. <laughs> Ready Player Ready Two. Player Two. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so that's what I watched. Uh, apart from all the things we've watched, a lot of stuff it, this week. To it review. was yeah, it was an exhaustive week of it was content i mean not to downplay it because there's some incredible things that we've had to watch this week but it was a lot to watch um i however and i won't give any spoilers but this morning i woke up very early and i Mm. watched season two episode one of the mandalorian aka mando star wars on disney plus uh pedro pascal returning uh john favreau directs the first episode um all i'll say is brilliant absolutely loved it episode one Brilliant. Ooh, and again, uh, Ludwig Gorenson returns uh, after his small break to uh, score the uh, Christopher Nolan film Tenet, returns back again to score this. And the music, again, is awesome in this as well. Visuals oh, are I can't awesome. Wait to see this. this is a great, it's a great episode. Um, awesome. I also watched, oh, by the way, we'll be reviewing that in a, in a later, um, in a later episode, but we prefer to watch two or three of a season before kind of giving it some, fo- some form of judgment. So we'll probably return to discuss Mando season two uh, on we the will. next week's show. Um, I also watched, uh, and this is one thing I'd like to definitely reach out to our listeners to, to make some time for David Attenborough's Netflix documentary, uh, a life on our planet, which I think is a, a crucial uh, documentary about how we're basically screwing the world up and, uh, and his ideas for, for changing that and reversing global warming and, um, and so on. And uh, honestly, it was fantastic. I've been avoiding it a little bit because um, mm-hmm. I wanted a kind of quiet time to, to sit down and watch that. But absolutely incredible. And I think it's something that if people do take it seriously, particularly people in positions of power, then uh, it could be a manifesto in, in many you know generations to come about how we uh, we retroactively f- uh, figured out how to change this, this shitty situation and uh, the fact we're killing this planet. And uh, speaking of planets or uh, extraterrestrials, I also have started watching, finally, the, the Star Trek Picard series, oh, which is the yes. follow-up to The Next Generation. Um, have you seen any of that at all? No, I'm not really a Trekkie very much. I don't watch much Star Trek. Uh, I enjoy well, the I believe films. the term is Trekker, but um, I'll let that is one it? go. Yeah, okay. I'm, I, I'm not... Then, I'm not really, I'm a fan of the Kelvin timeline, the J.J. Abrams movies and the Next Generation. Uh, I grew up watching Star Trek Next Generation. So mm-hmm. I wanted to catch up with this, loved it. Um, it, it, the first episode, and then it kind of fell off a cliff and became Firefly season two, um, which sounds like it's a good thing, but I don't know. I want to see where it goes. I'm not sold on it. But anyway, I watched I watched those in between all of the movies that we watched this week <laughs> and the interview and and everything else. It's been a it's been a busy old week. So yeah. we have a jam packed show. So we are going to skip this week's listener questions, although we do have some goodies. Um, but we thought we'd save those maybe for uh, for the next show. Um, and so we're just going to jump into the news. Phil, what have you got for us? Well, I have a couple of bits of 80s classic related news for you this week, Miles. I think most, I, 
potentially one of these things is going to make you angry. <laughs> Quite angry. Surely not. So I'm just going to read this to you. Goonies 2 concept art for pitch sequel turns treasure hunt into a theme park. So this is an article about um, Adam F. Goldberg, who you may know is the creator of um, the TV show, The Goldbergs, among other things. But of course he is. And he's a very big sort of 80s fan, you know, that cult mm-hmm. sort of classic fan, mm-hmm. uh, as you'll know from the series. So he has renewed his 15-year crusade to direct a Goonie sequel. Uh, so he's planning to, apparently he's planning to pitch this sequel uh, with concept concept art that features a theme park, which you can see online if you search for it. Um and we know that the original was directed by Richard Donner. Um, the great, by, the Richard great Donner. Richard Donner. Mm-hmm. Uh, screenplay by Chris Columbus and story by Steven Spielberg. I mean, that's like the dream team, isn't it? Along with Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. So he's been keeping his mouth shut, I think. But then Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale apparently wrote into their contracts from the beginning that no sequels or uh, remakes could be made without their permission, mm-hmm. um, thereby obviously maintaining its legacy. So maybe they, I don't know if they've done that sort of thing, but yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that, but apparently it was Warner Brothers that teased an announcement related to, to the film. Yeah, um, I don't know if I agree with it really, but I thought, you know. It smacks it, of uh, testing the water, doesn't it? Yeah, seeing does, if yeah. it goes viral, you know, obviously off the back of, um, you know, the the, uh, the the cast catch up that they did um, on uh, on YouTube during yeah. you know, the first wave of coronavirus. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like that's the direction maybe they're going and kind of teasing it to try to see whether audiences might be receptive, maybe. Yeah. It's a little cynical for me, but I mean, for me, kill it with fucking fire and do it right now. <laughs> I, think, I think I agree. Yeah, I think I agree. And then in other 80s related news, uh, so um, there's been... Weekend uh, at Bernie's 3. <laughs> no, I sort of wish Oh, it come on. <laughs> I'm still so, waiting, man. I'm fucking making a Goonies sequel, but not a Weekend at Bernie's 3. <laughs> Bernie, Weekend at Bernie's 3, colon, Bernie's still dead. <laughs> Bernie smells a bit more. <laughs> um, no, so this is about Warner Brothers... Warner Brothers again. Um, so they recently released uh, some more concept art related news uh, for Gremlins, uh, The Secrets of the Mogwai. So this is, uh, an <laughs> this is an animated prequel series, which is actually no. happening. It's, it's, gonna, it's airing on HBO Max at some point, no. featuring the Gremlins. Uh, and uh, as we know, that's that came from Joe Dante. Um, gremlins but he's actually a consultant for this as well um so it's not that much has been released about it except that it's set in 1920s shanghai uh as i said it is animated and they think that maybe the connection is there because in the original film he um billy receives gizmo after his dad purchases i think from chinatown isn't it yeah in an antique shop so yeah yeah uh yeah, so maybe it's to do with that, like the origins of that. Uh, and there's no casting being announced, but it has been revealed that Howie Mandel will not be returning to voice Gizmo. Hmm. Oh. 
<laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'd f- animated, don't care. Couldn't care less. <laughs> okay. Could you? Right, that's my new. Uh, but thanks so much for your news this week, Phil. Well, the, I really concept, do the concept art does look really good. It looks like a really different style Okay, uh, for animated. So I don't know. Who knows? But yeah, let the viewers decide. Let the viewers decide. Okay, uh, interesting. That's, that's my new. Sorry to you know raise your blood pressure there. Don't do it again. Um, so from my perspective, uh, a little bit of Disney news. So there was a, a kind of concerning update from um, from the studio heads at Disney who are now hot, hot on the heels of releasing um, uh, many of their, their kind of latest releases such as Mulan, um, Onward, um, and, and more coming soon onto the Disney Plus channel. They, they're now restructuring the studio to be more of a direct-to-consumer um, TV focus. So much of their content, obviously, that they've been relying on has been obviously theater-led. Um, yeah. During coronavirus, we've had obviously significant uh, you know, issues with the fact that we can't go to the theater anymore, and Disney have been releasing lots of these movies as VOD. Um, that's going to continue, it sounds like, not only during this coronavirus pandemic, but also in the long run. So Ooh. it sounds like uh, it's a really a bad thing, I think, for the cinemas that are out there in the theaters, um, because Disney are you know starting to focus more more on on TV and more on their own uh, their own kind of delivery mechanism with Disney Plus. And obviously, you know, when they sell you a, a Mulan movie for thirty dollars, they take that whole thirty dollars. You know, if they yeah. sell you know a ticket to a cinema, they probably take you know forty to sixty percent, depending on on their preferences. So, mm. you know, they're making a lot. Um, they can make a lot from from this. The cinemas will miss out. We as theater goers will miss out. Um, and you know, we may see this have a huge impact on many of the. Uh, the theatres and cinemas that we know throughout the world, throughout the country, um, for unfortunately having to struggle. So, um, so we'll we'll kind of follow this as it as it comes. And hot hot on the heels of that, um, there's also been the announcement that Oscar Isaac, uh, most recently seen as Poe Dameron in uh, the Star Wars uh, sequels, uh, is in talks to star in Marvel Marvel's new Disney Plus uh, series, which is Moon Knight, which is based on the comic of the same name. Um, they've actually just also found a director for this, uh, Mohammed Diab, who's going to oversee, you know, the, the show as showrunner, I believe, and, um, uh, also direct one or two of the, the, the kind of opening, um, the, the opening episodes. Um, so it sounds really interesting. So, so Isaac is not confirmed yet, but he is, uh, looking to ink the deal to play the, the character Moon Knight, AKA Mark Spector, who's a mercenary has multiple alter egos like Cabby J. Lockley and a millionaire playboy called Stephen Grant in order to better fight the criminal underworld. But later he was established as being a conduit for the Egyptian moon god Khonshu. Um, most recently, though, in recent kind of uh, graphic novels, the character was a consultant who dresses all in white and goes by the name Mr. Knight. So there's, you know, lots of different elements that they could cover here and restructure the character. Could be an interesting character for Oscar Isaac. But again, Disney Plus, uh, it's going to be Watch at Home. It's going to be a series. Um, but we will, you know, hold fire on that one and, and see what happens next. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. There you go. Um, let's talk about some trailers. Did you, yeah. uh, what did you, what did you check out this week? So, uh, yeah, I've got a couple. So the first one I watched was, um, which only came out, I think yesterday, uh, was one for the new Drew Barrymore film. 
uh, The Stand-In. So it looked quite interesting. It's a comedy, uh, uh, but with a bit of a different idea. So I, I quite like the look of it, actually. So it's she, play, she plays like a, a, a washed-up uh, film star, and she gets uh, arrested for tax evasion, and she, you know, she's sort of into drugs and alcohol, and um, she gets basically, you know, slammed by everyone, including her fans. Um, so she gets sentenced to rehab, and then she basically hires her former stand-in, like body double, um, who is also played by Drew Barrymore. Um, but with a bit of prosthetic on um, <laughs> to serve the time in rehab in her place. And then she realizes okay. that, oh, okay, this could be quite beneficial. So she starts doing, you know, talk show appearances for her and like, you know, like, like she goes to traffic school, she gets a speeding ticket and things like that. So, it, it, but then I think the story is going to be about how people, she really turns her around, like her public perception of her around, like the standing and becomes more popular than the actual star. So, um, I'm guessing at some point there's a big reveal and they find out, but yeah, it's um, it looks like it's, it could be quite fun. Or she kills the original one and then just takes that's it and just replaces her, yeah. and moves into her house. <laughs> that's yep. it. Yeah, that reminds me of the the it must be early 1990s or late 80s. Uh, Richard E. Grant dark comedy How to Get Ahead in Advertising. Did you ever see oh, that? Um, no, I've heard of it, but I don't think he, I've seen it. He he basically is like a he's an advertising executive in London. And he, a small boil starts to grow on his neck and from out of nowhere, basically. And he starts uh, kind of noticing that these little hairs are kind of growing out of it. And eventually a, a pair of eyes and a little mouth. And then it starts oh, talking yeah. to him. And then it grows into his a tiny little head. And then it, it basically grows into the same size head as his. And then, and then and then and has like a much more, you know, adaptive personality. And then his actual head starts to shrink down to become a boil. <laughs> so weird. So That's weird. That's probably fucked, fucked up. up. <laughs> fucked up. But uh, really? I don't know why that made me think of that, but it's kind of, it's kind of that. Kind of <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the, uh, let's get Drew Barrymore with a boil on her neck that starts talking to us. That's the horror version. Yeah. That sounds good. I want to watch it. <laughs> Coming soon uh, to video store corner. <laughs> Uh, what else did I see? So uh, a couple of just very quickly. So there's a new um, George Clooney film for um, Netflix. This uh, starring George Clooney and uh, Felicity Jones, who you might know from um, Rogue One and The Theory of Everything. And I think it's uh, George Clooney directed as well. So this mm-hmm. is a new yep. uh, space-based apocalyptic adventure called The Midnight Sky. Uh, and I think. George Clooney plays a scientist uh, in the Arctic that uh, is trying to warn a um, like a, a spaceship, <laughs> a returning spaceship or something. Yeah, a returning home spaceship that there's yeah. there's there's going to be a, like global cat- catastrophe and they shouldn't bother. <laughs> it kind of, yeah, it looks interesting, doesn't it? Kind of reminded me of like Obliv- Oblivion meets um, Thirty Days of Night meets Gravity. Yeah, like yeah, it's a bit like yeah, it's a bit of a mix of from the like, trailer. I don't yeah. know though if that means that it's. I mean, it's Netflix, isn't it? So it's coming to yeah. Netflix. So yeah. I would say if it was going to be a cinema release, I'd probably be quite worried for it with those references. But mm. um, looks interesting, and I'm all I'm all for George directing a kind of uh, blockbuster like that. 
Plus, he's got a great beard in the trailer as well. Great beard. Great Shaved head big with a bushy beard. A great big bushy beard. <laughs> <laughs> no, Hot Fuzz yeah. was last week, wasn't it? We talked about it. <laughs> yeah. The greater um, good. The greater good. Yeah, so that looks good. Um, yeah, what, what did you see? I I saw, I've, I've talked about this before, but the, this is actually the full trailer now for The Crown Season 4 that's coming to Netflix in November. Right. Obviously following on from the... Uh, less than true stories about the, uh, the 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 royal family in the UK, um, but this is really interesting because we see glimpses. Um, we've seen actually glimpses, but we now see kind of a more detailed glimpse of of Princess Diana, uh, a mm-hmm. young princess die, um, I guess in the in the eighties, and uh, and also Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher here mm-hmm. played by, and this is uh, so wrong as I loved her so much in the nineties, Gillian Anderson. Not Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> you love Gillian Anderson, not Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> I'm with Maggie. Um, no, like I love Gillian Anderson. Yeah, I think I've seen a bit, uh, like a bit of footage of and her. This is just, Thatcher. It kind of bring, brings back the memories, you know, in Austin Powers when uh, he's trying not to be, he's, he's trying not to get sexually aroused, and he he has the mantra. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher naked on a cold day. Margaret Thatcher <laughs> naked on a cold day. Yeah. It's basically, this is this this is going to ruin that. It's going to completely ruin it because now I'm just going to think of Gillian Anderson. I mean, she can um, do one hell of an English accent though, Gillian Anderson. She's English. A... Is she? Yeah. I should have known that. <laughs> Strike it from the record. Strike it from the record. She's she... not, is she? Yeah, yeah, she is. Yeah, she's from North London. So. Um... Oh, that's probably why then. It's probably why she got such a good, such a good English accent. She's got a Trey Bon English accent. Yeah, because I watched um, a series recently with her. Um, I can't remember what it was. It was like a she was a, a FBI agent or something, but not the X-Files. <laughs> was it the X-Files? <laughs> no, it's a more recent one. <laughs> no, she wasn't FBI. She was like British police, I think, like doing solving a murder. A murder. British police solving extraterrestrial crime activity. In I know. North I know London. that she was. She was born in the US, but she grew up in the UK, basically. So she's oh, okay. I yeah, didn't know she, that at all. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's. I think she grew up in Haringey in North London. So, oh, you fanboy. Oh, I know. I used to live near there, so I remember when she she was on a chat show once, and she mentioned it, and people were like, outside. "Oh, I thought you were American." She's like, "No, darling, I grew up in Haringey." Used to hang about outside her front door, did you? Hello, Gillian. Hello, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Crown season four looks awesome. Also, I will say because it's set in the eighties, it has a really cool little uh, remix kind of. Um, new version of uh, a cover version of how soon is now by the smiths one of my favorite bands right so you kind of hear that kind of coming through in the trailer and and that's pretty cool the trailer closes out with olivia coleman who's playing queen elizabeth um posing a question about lady die and she kind of turns to i think one of her aides and says what what happens if uh, if lady die what happens if she won't bend and then the response comes then she will break oh. which is you know pretty foreshadowing yeah um so yeah pretty cool also in more depressing climbs here comes the new covid movie oh god brought to you by the dark lord himself michael bay what is he doing i think oh, there he is pen. now there he's he is. outside <laughs> i think i've seen this pen as the 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 movie that no one wants to see basically yes um so this is called Songbird. It's set in the year 2024, where the COVID-23 
virus has mutated and the world is in its fourth year of lockdown. Infected Americans are ripped from their homes and forced into quarantine camps known as Q-zones from which there is no escape as a few brave souls fight back against the forces of oppression. And amid this dystopian landscape, a fearless courier called Nico, who is immune to the deadly pathogen, finds hope and love with Sarah, though her lockdown prohibits her from physical contact with him. When Sarah believes to have become infected, Nico races desperately across the barren streets of Los Angeles in search of the only thing that can save her from imprisonment or worse. Um, it's bizarre how quick this trailer and how quickly this production has come together. Um, it actually looks kind of fun if it wasn't <laughs> real. I was not expecting you to say that word. No, I mean, if it, you know, if it wasn't real, that Peter Stomari is in there. And Peter Stomari is in, you know, all the Michael Bay movies, in a lot of, lot of things. And seeing him in this, he's like kind of cartoonish villain number nine in this. Um, just weird. It's really bizarre, but it kind of looks fun. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we're going to watch it when it comes out. Um, I don't particularly want to, but no. um, uh, it's listed as coming soon. Um, hopefully, it'll come out once all this is over. And then no one will go to see it. But um, (laughs) but, who put money? Who went? Yeah, do you know what? That's what everyone needs to see: a film about the shitty situation we're in. Well, the guy who invented the term "bayhem" in cinema, (laughs) he's only going to make COVID his own, isn't he? Let's face it. Yeah. Wow. Great. So that's that. So, Songbird, check out the trailer for that. It's to be believed. So we work tirelessly to bring you some quality movie and TV insights, and today is no exception. Phil and I sat down with director, editor, producer, composer, amongst many others, Scott Barber, to discuss his first feature as director of the wonderful documentary, The Orange Years, The Nickelodeon Story. We'll discuss the movie after the interview, but all you listeners need to know right now is it focuses on such a prominent part of the 80s and 90s kids' childhoods with a walk down memory lane of the goings-on at kids' TV channel Nickelodeon during its inception and heyday. Enjoy. Hey, Scott. Welcome to the Movie Mouth podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So where in the world are you today and how have you been keeping yourself busy during the madness of this pandemic? (laughs) So I am based out of Houston, Texas, and I've been watching a lot of documentaries, watching a lot of TV and uh, just preparing to get this movie out. Awesome. Awesome. Good to hear. And we're looking forward to it getting out there. Definitely. Um, So Scott, the the Movie Mouth podcast that exists to... um, enlightened film fans and professionals alike in how to get your start in the filmmaking industry, uh, whether it's costume design, casting, stunt performance or acting. We'd love to know what's your background and how did you become a documentary filmmaker? Okay, yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Uh, So I run a uh, video production business with my wife in Houston. So I was kind of adept at all uh, you know, all aspects of filmmaking from shooting to editing and all of that stuff, just on a much smaller scale. And then myself and Adam Sweeney, my co-director for The Orange Years, we've written a couple of scripts together. Uh, and a little bit of backstory, we're actually childhood friends. We um, grew up watching Nickelodeon together, uh, which will come into play later on in the story. But, uh, you know, we both were super passionate about films. We had written a couple of scripts together together. 
Uh, and, you know, we had done the whole thing of writing scripts, trying to sell it, trying to get somebody excited about it and getting all sorts of notes from business type people and suits. And we really wanted to uh, make a film from start to finish where we were in control. So yeah. instead of, you know, hoping to get somebody to come in and be our white knight and saving us, we wanted something where we could come up with the concept, shoot it, edit it, put it out there all ourselves. And we figured a documentary film would be uh, the best way to do that. Uh, it also yes. kind of, it kind of played to our strengths. Adam has a really good uh, background in journalism and I have done a lot of little mini docs for other people. So we were kind of talking about it. We're like, you know what? I think we could, I think we could do this. I think we could make a doc, you know, if we could come up with a, uh, uh, a cool idea, you know, that people would be passionate about and something that had a really good story. So we just started kicking around ideas. Um, and one of them that kind of kept coming up was Nickelodeon. What about a Nickelodeon doc? Uh, and we saw that there had been, um, you know, nobody had done it. Nobody had made a, a documentary about Nickelodeon. There was a book, uh, the oral history of Nickelodeon called Slimed, uh, that was out there. But nobody had made a documentary about it. And we said, okay, maybe that's the way to go. Uh, but then, you know, there's the whole... Um, is there a story there? You know, there's got to be right. a story. It can't be right. just nostalgia. So as we started researching Nickelodeon, uh, we found, you know, uh, we found out about the work of the great Jerry Laybourne and her team, Scott Webb and Sweeney. And we realized there was a story there and there was a story that n absolutely needed to be told. So that's kind of what solidified it. We knew people would be excited about it, but then we also knew once we got people excited about it, there would be something worth watching. So right. that's kind of how we started. Uh, that's kind of how we got our start in documentary filmmaking. It was much different. You know, writing a documentary is much different than writing a script because what is writing a documentary, right? You know, we, mm. we found out, but, um, we just kind of jumped in with both feet and, uh, and, uh, and we did this thing. <laughs> That's I mean, super inspiring. And, uh, I'm sure will appeal to many of our listeners. And, you know, I think there's a kind of topic that you mentioned there with, with Adam, you know, growing up and, and, and absorbing Nickelodeon together, uh, who would you, I mean, what possibly more from your side classes, your filmmaking influences, and in particular, any documentaries that, inspired you both to then go on to this path oh my gosh so many great documentarians out there and you can you know there's always the big ones but um you know one guy that really inspired me um was a guy named bradford thomason he directed uh the documentary about glow the gorgeous ladies of wrestling and uh he also did one called the rock fire explosion i don't know if you guys had showbiz pizza out there no. but it it was this really crazy thing in the 80s where like there was a whole robot band and there was an arcade. It felt like a bar for kids, but he directed that. And the great thing is we got to work with him on the orange years. I was a fan of his. Wow. And then I got to work. He edited the orange years with me and Sean. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as filmmaking, I, if, if you're talking about just filmmaking in general, I love Edgar Wright. I love Wes Anderson. I mean, there's a lot of the, the you know, the big, right. big guys out there. But yeah, to, to kind of compartmentalize, I always liked Bradford's docs. Um, there's a guy, Tommy Avalone, who uh, directed the Bill Murray stories. Uh, and a really charming film yeah. called I Am Santa Claus that's about uh, – guys that play Santa Claus and what they do when it's not Christmas. Uh, and I didn't get to work with Tommy, but I talked to him and Tommy uh, did help hook me up with some other guys that, uh, that we got to work with on the orange years. So yeah, it was really kind of cool. I got to work with people that I was a fan of. So, Hey, 
that's even that's better. Awesome. Yeah. So on that vein, then, so what what made you? So, so obviously you do other things, but what made you gravitate towards documentaries as a filmmaker? Is it mainly like an, it, the interest in the topic, or is it a more you know studious approach to to filmmaking as a whole? You know, originally, I have to be honest, originally it was the accessibility. It was the fact that, uh, you know, if you're somebody that isn't already established and doesn't have a million dollars behind you, it's something that you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so originally, that's what draw me drew me to it. But then once we started making it, it absolutely took my heart. Like, that's, like... Originally, I wouldn't have really considered myself a documentary filmmaker. I just wanted to, you know, write and direct narrative features and things like that. But, but I'm hooked now. The, the the whole process has been amazing. And you know, I did have a background in 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 doing things similar to that, where I would work for companies and I would interview people and then take those interviews and shorten them down and make commercials and promo videos for them. Right. So uh, I I just absolutely love the process of making documentary films. I love how you don't you can keep it small and be nimble. You know, with the Orange Years, there's a lot of times where we had a two man crew. You know, yeah. I mean, that's kind of scary and, and mm-hmm. difficult, but it also is really fun because we didn't have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, a lot of different people telling us what to do. We got to make a film the way that we wanted to make it. And, you know, we didn't have a bunch yeah. of people telling us, you know, well, you know, someone gives you money, that's great, but they're going to want a say-so <laughs> at right. the end result. Oh, yeah. You know, and the fact that we were able to be so nimble and, and we kind of had this really small family unit making it. That's what I love about documentary films. Um, and just, yeah, the, the, the truthfulness of it. There's something about when when something is real. You know, I, I actually, I got my start filming weddings. <laughs> you know, that was something that I used to do. You know, I went to film school and, and I wasn't making any money. I was like, I got to make some money. So I'd film weddings and things like that. And, yeah. you know, you, you there's something and that's, you know, you can, that's cheesy or whatever. But there's something about capturing people like tearing up and it's real. It's not, right. it's not actors. I mean, and not, not to diminish what actors do at all, but there is just something that's just, it's just different, you know? So when you're filming a documentary and the emotion and everything is real, there's something to that, you know, that that's very visceral that really, I, I just connected with on a deep level, you know, capturing yeah. people really, really being emotional. They're not, they're not acting. Again, yeah. that's amazing. People that can that can bring bring emotion by their 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 craft of acting and all of that. That's that's amazing. But there's just something that's different that I just fell in love with about documentary filmmaking. Where they're not being told what to say, you know. It's, yeah, as you said, it's natural, yeah. natural reaction. Yeah, yeah. I used to do I used to do some um, wedding photography myself years okay. ago. Okay, and it's the same kind of thing. You know, you can take photos that you've set up or you're at a you know, you're at a gig and you're doing some gig photography or whatever, but being at a wedding, although it was intensely stressful, I never, ever want to do it again. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> you're so right. Um, uh, there is something quite rewarding about, you know, getting that shot that's, you know, the most natural reaction of happiness. And yeah, I completely get that. Yeah. yeah. We, we It's funny, actually, we were talking last night, weren't we, Phil, about how the the kind of um, cast and crew list for this picture was was so slight. You know, when you look at a documentary <laughs> in comparison to a you know a major production, and 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 how you know the majority of individuals in a specific role were producers. You know, so right. it, it was clear that you've gone out and you've hustled and you've got this 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 picture together. But one thing that uh, you know I really want to touch on you mentioned is is the emotion. 
um, aspect. And and as as I said, you know, Phil and I watched the or- the Orange Years, the Nickelodeon story. Your wonderful movie. One of the best parts of hosting the Movie Mouth podcast is getting to discuss our film passions at length. That's what this is all about. And as ever, Phil and I discussed this this picture last night. After watching it, I think the first word, wasn't it, Phil, that, that came out of our mouths was simply nostalgia. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so we'd we, we'd love to know how you know yourself and 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 Adam identified this as a topic to create such a kind of joyful, heartwarming walk down memory lane, and you know where that idea came from. Yeah, well, I mean. For starters, you know, me and Adam watched these shows together. You know, we were friends back whenever all this stuff was was coming out. Um, and we watched it together. And that was a huge part of our friendship. You know, we were also, I think, the target of of Nickelodeon in a lot of ways. You know, there's a, there's a line in the trailer, you know, where Jerry Laybourne says, you know, families were getting divorced. Their right. uh, single moms. Mothers. Single mothers and mothers yep. and dads were both having to go to work instead right. of just dad or just mom. And so there was a lot of latchkey kids. And, um, you know, we both fell into that category, you know, where where we spent a lot of time, you know, we, we both, you know, spent a lot of time outdoors as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam, probably more than me, he was a little more athletic. I, I think I just <laughs> kind of played in the woods, built forts and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, you know, we, 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 you know, we were well-rounded kids, but we did spend a lot of time in front of the TV. And so it meant a lot to us. And, uh, you know, we also, um, you know, whenever Adam's mom and dad split up, um, he moved away, you know, and right. that sucks when you're a kid, you know, because... Yeah. You, this is back before social media and stuff where somebody moves to another city, even if it's only an hour away there, they might as well be on Mars, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, we would call each other whenever Snick would be playing Saturday mm-hmm. night, Nick. Yep. And we would watch, are you afraid of the dark together? And, you know, kind of do like, like what we're doing now, we would talk about the episode afterwards, you know, we would talk during it and be like, Oh my God, you know, and then we would talk <laughs> about afterwards. So what'd you think about it? You know, we're like 12 years old. Um, and we had such fond memories of that, you know, we had such fond memories of that. And, um, as we grew up, we, we, we would, you know, that would come up in conversation a lot, you know, and we would talk about being kids and stuff. And we were kind of like, why, you know, cause there's a lot of things that you watch when you're a kid that then when you grow up, you just kind of forget about, you know, it's just kind of disposable entertainment. But we, we, we would always talk about Nickelodeon, you know, always saying you know, it would come up in our in our conversations and stuff. And so we really wanted to take a look at why. Why was that? You know, was it there are certain things that you like just because that's what was going on when you were a little kid. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's it's there are certain things in your life. It's simply nostalgia. And that's mm-hmm. all there is to it. There's mm-hmm. nothing else to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of eighties music that I can totally admit isn't particularly great, but I like it because it reminds me of the eighties, which is when I was a little kid and makes me feel good, you know, <laughs> yep. um, uh, you know, or like transformers, you know, that's not a particularly great TV show, but you know, when I hear that Optimus prime voice, it, it takes me back, you know? And, yeah. and, and, and it was really great to, kind of pull back the curtain almost like the wizard of oz mm-hmm. and see what was behind why why does everyone have such fond nostalgic memories of nickelodeon and see that it really wasn't just nostalgia there was something truly amazing there you know there was something yeah. really behind the scenes there was something really great going on 
which is why we're still talking about it today, which is why people have such a such a deep reaction to these shows. It's because of the work that these people did. It wasn't an accident. It's not just nostalgia. I, I truly feel there's something deeper than just that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're children of the 80s. Well, me and Miles are. And uh, it's 100% that. You know, I've got a Back to the Future poster on my wall behind me. You know, it's that, it's just... It's the best. It's part of who we, <laughs> yeah. part of who we yeah. are. It's part of what made us, isn't it? Yeah. Part of what exactly. made us. Yeah. And I think a key, you know, a key part of the nostalgia that we're talking about is the fact that you've managed in the documentary to assemble such a large <laughs> quantity of classic clips and uh, behind the scenes outtake stuff um, of, you know, of all the really great shows that it features. Um, how easy on a technical level was it to acquire the rights to the material and what was your process as a director producer and editor yeah that's a great question so the rules are a little different in every country every part of the world but here in the states there's something called fair use and basically if you're making a documentary and you're not trying to pass off somebody's work as your own yeah then you can show it you just have to have a lawyer sign off and say this all falls under fair use and they sign a and you get a little letter that says that you followed the rules and it's also the thing is it's it's difficult because it's it's subjective it's not something that's like four seconds or less or you know, there's no rule. There's no black. It, it's all up to somebody's opinion. So the lawyer has to watch it. And we worked with a fantastic uh, law firm called Donaldson and Caliph. They literally wrote the book on fair use because right. people I think that's, in my opinion, one of the reasons why we're seeing this documentary boom. People only figured this out a, a little while ago that you can do this and you don't have to like. I mean, because if we had licensed all those clips, it would have been so much. We could have never afforded it. There's just right. no way. Yeah. Um, so they watch your film and they give you advice. They say, hey, trim this clip up. This clip works under fair use. This clip doesn't. Um, okay. and, and so that you just you just basically listen to your lawyer. And uh, like I said, we use Donaldson and Caliph. They they literally wrote the book. There's in, in, in colleges the book that people read on fair use. They, they Michael Donaldson wrote it, and wow. uh, they were so easy to work with. They were great, and they told us what to do. And so we just did that, and then they signed off on it. One thing that they they told us is that you know just because you legally can do something doesn't necessarily mean that you you should there's lots of things that are totally legal but mm -hmm. they're maybe not a nice thing to do yeah so they kind of advised us talk to nickelodeon tell them what you're doing let them know give them the opportunity to work with you and uh just so they're not blindsided and you know we we also luckily there's really nothing in our film that's like you know bad mouthing Nickelodeon. So I think had we done that, maybe we would have been more at risk, but we knew that we were doing something that kind of celebrated their early years. So we weren't that afraid, you know, something like Blackfish, you know, to right. SeaWorld. I'm sure they, right. they, they had to be a lot more careful because I'm sure SeaWorld probably wanted to sue them if they could, yeah. um, you know, or supersize me and McDonald's, you know, mm -hmm. things like that, that are portraying something in a, in a very negative light. We're overall very positive about Nickelodeon. So yeah. We didn't really have to worry about it. But yeah, I mean, we, we just got Donaldson and Calif to write our, we have our uh, 
fair use opinion letter and and, and we were good to go that's awesome that's really interesting yeah yeah and then i think something else that's clear as well from from the movie is that you you conducted some exhaustive interviews um, <laughs> yeah i mean wow You've got everyone here from Melissa Joan Hart, Christine Taylor, uh, Keenan and Kel. Obviously, you know, the players behind us is Jerry Labor and so on. Yeah. How many air miles did you earn flying to all these interviews? But more, <laughs> more, more, more seriously, which which interview left you the most starstruck? Oh my God, Jerry Laybourne, easily. Right. They they all they all did. I mean, Mark Summers, come on, you know, like when you meet Mark, I was not ready for that, you know. Right. And uh there's a guy named Danny Cooksey who was Budnick on Salute Your Shorts. I was pretty starstruck uh, <laughs> just because I wanted to be him when I was a, a, a little kid. But the funny thing is Jerry Laybourne was actually one of the last interviews that we filmed for the documentary. And we had basically resigned right. to the fact that we were not going to get her um, just because um, she doesn't do a lot of interviews. She just doesn't, particularly about Nickelodeon. And it's not anything negative. It's just that's not where she is in her career, and she doesn't want it. I think a lot of people want her to say bad things about Nickelodeon, like, wasn't it so much better when you were there? Look how the mighty have fallen. And she just doesn't like to talk about it. You look at what she was president of the Disney Channel after Nickelodeon, yeah. and yeah. she also co-founded the Oxygen Network right. with uh, Oprah. Oprah. <laughs> and yeah. then now she has a company called Catapult. So she's just done a lot of things. So we had basically resigned to the fact that we were not going to get her, and that was okay. Um, there are plenty of documentaries where the primary subject isn't in it. We were going to just make her up to be this mythical, beautiful beast you don't ever get to see. <laughs> and then we got the word at the very end. She saw some of the stuff that we had cut together, and she wanted to do it. Awesome. And, uh, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was like being in the present. I mean, because she is like a legit – like vi I mean, she's a visionary. Yeah. In every yeah. sense of the word, yeah. to get to get to be around somebody that's like that changed the shape of television completely, like multiple times. Yeah, I was I was not ready for it, and she it's it's so great because you could tell she kind of could sense because first of all, it's like the movie's kind of about her, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and she's really good at what she does, so it's like oh man, she's gonna be so critical of this. I hope she likes it and. She just was so sweet and so kind and knew she I think she could sense I was nervous and did a great job of calming me down and it was a beautiful experience <laughs> to get to meet her. Just wonderful. And yeah, then I, to kind to kind of go back to answer your other question, um, you know, we actually you know, you look at how much there's an Indiegogo, you can see how much we raised for this film. Right. And that's another thing I'm really proud of, is that, you know, we 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 made our budget last, <laughs> and part of that was because we did everything. You know, I, I I I I shot some of the film, and our producer Sean shot a lot of it, and a couple of other guys shot it, and we also edited it. We did a lot of this ourselves. Um, but we went to LA. We would go to Los Angeles, and we would just film interviews for like ten hours every day. We just booked the day solid. That's how we that's how we were able to do it. We'd go to yeah. Los Angeles and in like in one trip we 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 filmed Steve Slavkin, the creator of Salute Your Shorts, Mark Summers, Elisa Reyes, Josh Server, Lori Beth Denberg, uh Venus DeMilo, Michael Ray Bauer, uh Lisa Malamed, Graham Yost. Um I mean it was like 15 people in one trip and then we went to New York and basically did the same thing so really we only took about 
like maybe four trips for this whole thing. Really? Wow. wow. Yeah, we took wow. we took true two we took two trips to Los Angeles, one trip to New York, and then I made a special trip to Georgia to get Jim Jenkins, and I made a special trip to um uh um Nashville to get Vanessa Coffee. Wow. And that wow. was it. Well, I think it was worth it. And you know, there were so many just amazing interviews. Uh, Jim Jenkins was was great as well oh, because yes. I didn't realize he's actually Doug. <laughs> the creator yeah. Doug. He is actually Doug. Doug. Yeah. He is Doug. He is. <laughs> and he was the nicest, coolest guy I've ever met. Like when I met him, uh, it was pretty cool because I, I got to go to dinner with him afterwards. I was like, hey, thank you so much for uh, for doing this interview. Can I take you out to dinner? And I took him and he was like all... He called his wife to see if she could come, and when she said yes, he got all giddy. Like, you know, whenever you go on a first date with a girl that you really like, and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. That's how he was acting for his wife of, like, you know, 30 years. It's like, dude, you're, like, a great man. Like, And that's in the documentary. That's what they say. And that's – I can attest yeah. that is true. He is the <laughs> – and, 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 and we're talking about all sorts of, like, music and art. He's, like – you know, Doug sometimes gets a bad rap for being like the square show compared to Ren and Stimpy and uh, and Rugrats and Rocco's yeah. Modern Life that all were chock full of sexual innuendos. But um, man, he was like the coolest guy I've ever met. He was awesome. <laughs> oh, and one more trip. I, I, I can't believe it. I said uh, that I only went to Los Angeles two times, New York, but I we also went to Canada and that was amazing. We got to go to, in one trip, we went to Ottawa and Toronto and we got the You wow. Can't Do That on Television people and the Are You Afraid of the Dark people. Sorry. Oh, okay. Can't forget yeah. the Great White North. Love Canada. Ah, oh, it was my first time in Canada. I fell in love. Canada, mwah, love you. <laughs> All of it. <laughs> um, so uh, just to um, ask, how long did assembling the the movie take from, from start to finish? And what, what would you say was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome for it? Um... So you mean from the moment we started booking interviews to the moment we we uh, finished guess, editing it? I guess from the moment that you incepted the the idea, you know, from that inception onwards, you know, how long did it take? You know, it was um, maybe about a year and a half, maybe two years from the moment we came up with the idea till the moment that uh, that we finished it. It's funny; it's always fall time. Like our crowdfund, we did in the fall. And then we debuted the, we kind of cut a little trailer together and we debuted that at New York City Comic Con the next fall. And then the fall after that, we uh, debuted the film at Doc NYC. And now two years later, here we are in the fall and the movie's coming out. But so I touched on this before, but one of the the, the worst things about indie filmmaking is that you got to do everything yourself. There is no, that's, if you're the kind of person that goes, well, that's not really my job or that, that should fall on somebody else. Don't even try to make an indie film. You know, you got to do everything. You know, you're the craft yeah. services. You're, you know, there were times where we were up late just doing all sorts of random stuff. Um, but the upside is, the downside is you got to do everything. The upside is you get to do everything. That's right. what's yeah. awesome. So, especially when you're making a documentary like this where you're going to New York, you're going to LA, you're going to Toronto, you're going to all these fun places, you're meeting all your childhood heroes. Yeah, we would work 12-hour days and we would, you know, go on a plane from one place to the other and we're up editing late at night, but it was all fun. You know, so none of that even though we were working so insanely hard, 
we were getting to make the movie we wanted to make, and it was a really fun movie. So I would say all the actual process of making the movie, it was all awesome. <laughs> like it was all great. <laughs> the um the 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 part that I would say is tough is there's a lot of hurry up and wait. When things would happen, you'd wait forever, and then when something does happen, it happens quickly, and everybody wants it now. Like when we got submitted, when we got accepted to Doc NYC. It was like, okay, we need the movie now, and we need everything. And there was still some stuff we were we hadn't done yet. So it was like, because we submitted a rough cut to them, and they got they liked it. And like, okay, cool, we need the we need the whole movie done, and it had to be in a certain way, and the audio had to be a certain way, and they needed it like quickly. So it was like it felt like we were waiting forever to get a, a festival to accept us. And then once we did, we had to get it quickly. And the same once Gravitas bought the film, it was like we had all this this list of all these deliverables, and we had to get them quickly. But the hardest part, I would say, because we were every single aspect of the movie we did, you know, from concept, you know, all the 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 conceptual stuff, what would yeah. the movie be like, and 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 hiring all the different vendors, like the the graphic artists, and filming it, you know, and editing it, and the music, you know, we got to be part of everything, and that was awesome. It was the parts that we weren't involved in that were difficult for me personally. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's not my job. When it came time to do the stuff that like salespeople and business people right. do, we weren't involved in that. Once it came time to sell the film, um, and we shouldn't be, you know, that's, I don't know how to do that. You know, if I was there trying to tell these people that have been doing this for 20, 30 years, it probably would have been a bad thing. So it, it, it wasn't anything bad against anybody else. It was just, we went from having all this control and knowing everything to having basically no control. It's like, thanks, we got the film. We're going to find a home for it. And we're going, oh, okay, let you know, let us know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, it's scary when you're handing over your like your baby, basically, once it's, you know, once you've had all that control. Th- that's the exact analogy that I would use, like uh, letting your baby go. You know, it's like, I hope you have to have a lot of trust that people will be passionate. About. When someone sells your film, you hope that they're as passionate about the film as you are and yeah. that they think about it because, you know, you want them to find not just a home, but the right home for it, you know? Yeah. And uh, we were very fortunate. You know, Gravitas is the company that is our distributor. And I love Gravitas. I've watched a lot of their films and they have the Ren and Stimpy doc, which is an absolute masterpiece. It's wonderful. So I think this is um, our film is very different than that, but I think that them kind of living at the same place is uh, really awesome. So, <laughs> with that in mind, then if you if you could tell yourself now that you've completed the project, uh, you know before you started, you could go back in time and you could say give yourself one piece of advice. Uh, what would it be? Um. M- the advice I would give myself is to set my expectations, um, to give myself realistic expectations. And that is that right. the whole process is going to be basically divided into thirds. You're going to spend as much time filming it as you are editing it. And then as much time as you did that selling it, you know, I mm. thought we would, I thought we would film it, edit it, and then sell it in a couple of months. And, and you, you just have to set aside some time to find a home. Yeah. That takes that takes more time than I thought it would, but that's just that's just the nature of the beast, and I didn't know that. You know, I had made little short films and stuff. I had certainly never tried to s- sell a feature length film before because I, I had never made a feature length film before. So <laughs> I would just let myself know that hey, it's it, 
it's going to be a while. Um, and be aggressive, you know, uh, don't be afraid, you know, if you know, you have something that you're proud of, um, you know, don't, don't, don't give in, you know, be, be, be aggressive and, and uh, be aggressive and assertive in, the, in those negotiations. Some great, some great advice. Um, and you know, I think there's some nice use as well here of accompanying animation for supporting some of the great anecdotes uh, you know, thinking back to a moment where Jerry Laybourne, for example, you know, sees the the eight year old walking across the the living room and, and kind of says, you know, it sucks to be a kid. You know, the, the, there was some really nice kind of uses of animation in here. What was what was your process for storyboarding these, and how late in the process did they come together? Yeah, that was actually pretty early on. Um, I have a great friend who was another person in addition to Adam, uh, a guy named Jeff Johnson. And we've been friends for over 20 years. Um, the first band I was ever in, uh, Jeff, was the drummer. And uh, he was I knew he was a brilliant animator. I knew it because I had seen it. And I knew he had a style that was kind of influenced by uh, John Chris Felusi. Uh, and, and, you know, that kind of he had that kind of style, that kind of gross, but in a really cool way. <laughs> um, I, it, and that was just luck. And when we were... Uh, you know, that's a pretty common thing to have animation tell stories because you don't want to just look at talking heads. And if there's no film, you know, if nobody was filming, there's no B-roll to support it. A lot of people do that. And that's kind of one of my pet peeves is when the animation feels like a crutch. Uh, to me, the animation should fit the style of the documentary so it doesn't feel like a crutch. It feels just like a, it needs to feel natural. You know, there's a lot of documentaries where the animation I feel like is good, but it doesn't really fit the style. Um, yeah. And, and I just, I said, oh my God, Jeff kind of has a Nicktoons style. So if our animation for this Nickelodeon documentary is kind of Nicktoons style, that'll be perfect. And so, um, that story, there's a story that Mark Summers talks about, like a kind of crazy behind the scenes story at Double Dare. And we tested that first. I sent Jeff Mark's interview and said, hey, can you kind of whip something up and see if this will work? And he came back with that Mark Summers animation. I was like, oh my God, like this is going to work. I knew it was going to work. So we knew we wanted to work with Jeff early on. Jeff was actually even involved in our um crowdfund all the way from our original crowdfund campaign um we had a perk that if people donated a certain amount of money we would give them a drawing of themselves drawn in a nicktoons style so they could pick between doug rugrats or ren and stimpy they could get themselves drawn in that style and wow. jeff did that so it's funny everyone picked rugrats like the majority of people that that did that, they were like, "Draw me as a rugrat." So he, Jeff, would draw people as rugrats. So he was involved from the very beginning. And a funny thing is, you know, Jeff was in um, my very first ever band. And just to kind of show you how fun it is and how involved you can be when you're making your own film, I was editing the Pete and Pete section, and I knew I wanted the music to kind of sound like '90s indie rock, kind of yes. like Super Chunk or Dinosaur Junior, because that's yep. kind of how Pete and Pete felt. And I couldn't find any music that was the way I wanted it. And so I just called up Jeff and I was like, hey, man, you want to go in the studio and just record a song for the Pete and Pete part? So we did. We just booked some studio time. And there's a part where when we talk about Artie, 
the strongest man in the world. <laughs> yeah. That's me and Jeff and uh, and a talented bass player named Justin Smith. We just recorded that song, and that was a blast. I got you know I got to record music with one of my best friends, who's also the animator. Uh, I got to record a song with him and get like a composer credit. How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, not many people get to do that. But yeah, yeah. Is there anything you didn't do on this movie? It's like <laughs> <laughs> absolutely love that. You know, and, and more to that point, Scott, I, I noticed that, that you were in the credits and on the uh, on that piece. And and actually, when I was when I was watching the, the film last night, I, I thought to myself, how the heck did they get the Pete and Pete theme tune without the lyrics? Because it's it's so seamless. The, the, the song that you're playing in the background after you introduce Pete, Pete and Pete, and yeah. you see the, the opening credit. Gen- genuinely, I was like, wow, you know, I have to check this song out tomorrow. I got to give a couple. I got to give credit to a couple of, of people there. One, Bradford Thomason, who I mentioned. Uh, you know, he he edited the film with me and Sean Coffin. He introduced me to a technique where, you know, with fair use, you can only play the clip for a little while, right? Uh, and then whenever you go to the interviews, you can't keep the music play. So we we play the um, the Pete and Pete theme song because um, that's something that really stands out for Pete and Pete. That theme song yeah. is just great awesome um and then uh i wanted to keep playing the theme song under the interviews but you can't do that 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 is using somebody else's work as your own if you're going to use a soundtrack you have to pay for it and bradford taught me a technique where what you do is you record a song that sounds really similar to the other song and then you dip in between them so it sound to the to the listener it sounds as though you're still playing the same song even though you're not 100 percent and and there's two points where we do that. With Hey Dude, we do that as well, where it's that doom da doom 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 da doom doom, you know, that country song. And then we continue playing it. And even tricked our lawyer. Our lawyer gave us that note. They're like, you can't keep playing the Hey Dude song under the <laughs> interviews. And I was like, it's not. But the credit I have to give to a, a super talented guy named Darren Beck. And Darren Beck plays in a band called Pinkish Black. And he's another person I was a fan of that I got to work with. Darren Beck did almost all of the music for mm-hmm. this movie. And with a lot of documentaries, you know, there's the same kind of music playing throughout the whole thing. And in fact, you even use the same song four yeah. or five times. But we wanted every chapter to sound different. You know, when we're talking about, hey, dude, sounds like country. When it's Pete and Pete, it's kind of like this indie <laughs> rock. You know, when it's you can't do that on television, it's like this weird polka stuff. With Are You Afraid of the Dark, it's kind of some John Carpenter horror sounding stuff. And Darren wrote all of that. He wrote like probably 75% of the music in in the Orange Years Darren wrote. And it's crazy how many songs he had to write. He had to write like, you know, 40 different little songs. And he did that. He he wrote songs that so I got to give credit for Bradford for giving the, me the idea to to do that and then um give credit to Darren for doing that. He he wrote songs that sounded just like the Pete and Pete songs and and the and the Hey Dude songs and then we just faded between them so it sounds as though we're continuing to play those songs even though we're not. 100%. I, I mean I can vouch for that. I can absolutely vouch for that. And uh, I did I thought it was seamless to me. So uh, it worked extremely Thank you. well. So congrats you guys. Um <laughs> So in a similar vein talking about music, I I, I noticed on your um IMDb page that you're you've got you're working in a documentary uh, about the heavy metal band Gwar. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I'm a metal fan myself, and I'm a guitarist myself as well. Um, I'd love to know if it's that you know you're a fan or what, what made what made you pick pick this as your next focus. 
Man, you do your research. Nobody's ever asked me about that. Um, um, but I was yeah, really it excited is. Excited when I saw it. To be fair, yeah, because <laughs> I, I love Guar. I love Guar too, and obviously, uh, it's not. You know, we're, we haven't advertised it yet or anything, but it is. It is. It is on IMDb, so it's out there. Uh, so it's fair game to talk about for sure. But um, I've always loved Guar. I think Guar is one of those bands. They're kind of like Motorhead. Or like the Misfits, where they're one of those bands that everybody likes. Like yeah. heavy metal fans, punk fans, even people that like like hipster indie rock love Guar. Everybody loves Guar. They're 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 a little bit like Spinal Tap in that yeah. they're 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 celebrating heavy metal, but they're also definitely making fun of heavy metal for sure. Oh yeah, you know? they're just a fun band to watch, they're, aren't they? They're a super fun band, and. Uh, you know, I, you know, similar to Nickelodeon, I was thinking, what would I want to do next? And kind of the idea of Guar came about. And then once I started doing some research, I was like, oh, there's a story there. There is a real story there. So um, I, a friend of a friend, you know, I, 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 um, a guy I worked at a coffee shop with a long time ago ended up opening up for Guar and I was like, Hey, you know, the Guar guys like, Oh yeah, I, I have Thanksgiving at their, at their house. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was like, can you introduce me? And so I did. And I, I pitched them the idea of a documentary and they, I, I kind of shared with them my take on it and they liked it. And, uh, so it was on and I, I, I've been working on it for a long time. Um, filming them, filming their concerts, following them around, and uh, it's it's been a blast, and it's funny because it it really is. It it truly is. And people say, "Wow, Nickelodeon to Guar." It's like, "Hey, but I'm getting slimed in both." You know, um, <laughs> yeah. I've got a picture of me with green slime all over me from the Nickelodeon documentary, and I've got a a picture of me just head to toe in blood from a Guar show. And <laughs> they are similar. Like I love people that kind of give the middle finger or two fingers for you guys. Um, uh, to, to society and say, I'm going to do it my way. You know, I'm not going to, you know, Nickelodeon said, we're going to make children's programming the way we want to make it. You know, and Guar said, I'm going to make music the way I want to. And Guar is a bit like Nickelodeon in that people like them, but you don't necessarily know why you like Guar. Cause you know, like bands like Slipknot and ICP, I could care less about, you know, and, mm. and some people yeah. compare them to that, but it's like, no, 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 no. Guar is totally different than that. Yeah. And, um, and and, and, and and sometimes I would have a hard time explaining why. There's certainly the satirical element of it. But um, that's what we're doing. Very similar to what we do with the Nickelodeon doc. We're pulling the curtain back and going, you know this thing called Guar is awesome and you like it. Here's why. You know, and, and there's <laughs> those guys are like the most amazing guys and girls. There's been a lot of badass women in Guar too. And they're just mm. amazing people. Yeah, they're very talented. I think you know they could be distracted. You could be distracted by the look of them a bit, but you got to appreciate that they're all really good musicians as well. And they're punk. That's the thing. It, mm. You know, people can say, "Oh, you guys are cheesy. Oh, you're this, that." But they they have the most DIY ethos of any band I've ever seen. Like they put most punk bands to shame with those guys. Because all that stuff they do themselves. There's not a you think there's a big team behind it, but it's them. They make all that stuff. They put it together. They get they get there to their shows at ten in the morning and put all that stuff together. It's yeah. It's crazy how punk they are. Even though they're kind of known as this like big over the top metal band. <laughs> That's very brilliant. cool. 
Very cool. So that's coming next. But obviously, this movie we've been discussing is the Orange Years, the Nickelodeon story. Scott, can you right. tell us and tell our listeners uh, how they're going to be able to to watch this picture when it's uh, when it's being released and and where? Yeah, so you can rent it or uh, buy it uh, if you want a digital version on iTunes or Amazon. Uh, if you want a physical copy, uh, Target.com or Amazon.com also uh, has DVDs and Blu-ray. So yeah, you're either way. And then we're hoping, um, you know, at the beginning of next year to move to you know like a subscription platform. Very cool, very cool. So our listeners better get out there and watch this because uh, we're all pretty much that same demographic and. Uh, it really was a, a wonderful documentary to, to watch, Scott. And, you know, thank you personally for, you know, a lot of that nostalgia that you brought back. And uh, I'm going to go find uh, the the entire series of Ren and Stimpy now and watch that, even though I'm a, a grown ass man, because uh, <laughs> you reminded me of how awesome that show is and how much I probably missed in uh, between the lines with a lot of the subtext. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing I've had a blast doing is going back and things that I missed as a kid going like, oh, wow, they were definitely referencing deliverance in Rocco's modern life. Wow. <laughs> you know, Rocco was a sex worker in one in one episode of Rocco's modern life. It's like, Wait, how what? did they get away with this? You know, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, did you say boy or buoy? Sounds <laughs> sounds amazing. Um, wish you the best of luck uh, with with this movie and, of course, your your next project and thanks again for joining us here on the movie mouth podcast the pleasure was all mine thank you so much for having me really enjoyed that interview um wow what a cool guy scott is and uh a big thank you to him for agreeing yes. to be interviewed by phil and myself 1 a.m his time uh what a dude thanks thanks again scott looking forward to that guar doc um i think yes. phil most of all can't wait for that I'm straight there. Yes, definitely. I'm going to be back in touch for an early screener for that one. <laughs> you definitely will. And speaking of screeners, we got the jump on this. We uh, uh, have been able to review it. Um, obviously, uh, in order to to obviously ask Scott the, the myriad of questions that we went into in the interview. But we'll jump into a kind of quick review slash overview of, of the documentary. Um, and this is a really exciting one, I think, for both myself and Phil, who grow up, grew up, you know, watching uh, Nickelodeon, um, yeah. you know, and through our formative years. Um, and actually for myself, from a personal note, you know, Scott mentions, you know, him and his, his co-director being, you know, uh, coming from a broken home and having the TV there to kind of, you know, watch and, and absorb things uh, that were more positive. I was in the same boat. So absolutely love this uh, documentary. It follows... Um, a, a small startup kids channel flourish into the behemoth that is today under the leadership of Wizard of Oz like genius Jerry Laybourne. Um, we get interviews with everyone from Keenan and Kel, uh, Melissa Joan Hart, aka Clarissa Explains It All, and also the makers of all those incredible shows produced by the channel in the early to late 90s, such as Rugrats, Doug, uh, Ren and Stimpy, Rocco's Modern Life. SpongeBob SquarePants, Are You Afraid of the Dark, etc., etc., etc. The interviews, as mentioned in the interview, are exhaustive um, and amazing. And I'm so happy that the guys managed to interview all these players here because the, it, I don't know about you, Phil, but for me, the story of the inception of, of Nickelodeon and then the behind the scenes, it's told really well. It almost becomes 
kind of visual and is kind of built by the interviews the way they've edited it as well yeah i mean it's you know it's 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 timeline based but that makes it for me like really interesting because i i wasn't aware you know i joined i got cable tv when i was in my early teens and i was around when those kind of shows started you know when they came out on nickelodeon but i think what we missed out on which i didn't realize until the documentary came out is those sort of early shows that um nickelodeon started with uh before they did like the animation stuff and before they got into the you know drama based stuff they did a lot of like the the kids game shows and they look and you know quiz shows and things like that and yeah. they looked like they were massive over in america and we didn't get any of those here on the nickelodeon channel well I, I, not that i remember anyway on the you know on cable tv we yeah. I, we tend just to get sort of the drama shows and the animation stuff the nicktoons uh, yeah yeah nicktoons basically so yeah, I wasn't aware of that whole sort of that side of it, really, and how huge it was. And, mm. you know, so that was really, it was really interesting to see. Hey, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. It's really, really cool to see that background. I think, you know, there were, for me, I mean, I, there, I don't know about you, but there were also moments of, of, of remembering things that I'd completely forgotten about. Like, oh, yeah. As we yeah. mentioned in the interview, like a show, Pete and Pete, that I'd completely forgotten about which I loved and I never forget things, you know, I, I rarely forget things that meant a lot to me, but Pete and Pete and the theme tune to Pete and Pete, which I've since been absolutely playing in overkill, much to everyone's <laughs> disdain around me, yeah. um, which is absolutely amazing. Um, I had chills at certain moments. I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. You know, and, and after all these years, you know, it's just brilliant to bring back some of these memories. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was also, I also laughed so much at this especially as um as scott mentions on the interview they interview this guy mark summers who was so instrumental in in particular in the early days of of nickelodeon some of his anecdotes which we won't spoil but some of his anecdotes um you have to really watch the movie to to kind of believe them they're so fun and he just does not give a shit he just goes into <laughs> literally as much detail as needed on, on some things that might even have some legal ramifications i don't know <laughs> uh, <laughs> scott said the lawyers uh, reviewed everything but um but i don't know and i loved how the narrative followed the progression of the channel's meteoric rise introduces the shows chronologically in a really concise way that tells us the full story um f- i mean for me highly recommended documentary especially for you 90s kids out there you can find this everywhere. You can rent this or buy it on Amazon, Apple, or you can buy a physical copy. Remember those on DVD <laughs> or Blu-ray uh, in the US on Target or Amazon worldwide. Um, so the Orange Years, the Nickelodeon story, um, not just because we had the interview, not just because we got an early watch of it, but because this it meant it's a time that meant so much to both myself and Phil. And therefore, we give it a high, high recommendation. Absolutely. Congrats, Scott. So, Phil, do you want to get us started off here with some of the other reviews? Yes, I shall. So, the first one I've got for you is the uh, the Trial of the Chicago 7, which was released on Netflix on the 16th of October. So, it's a, it's a based on a true story Netflix film, um, and it's about, it's basically a, a historical American legal drama um 
It's written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, um, who he, I think he directed uh, Molly's Game, which we actually mentioned mm-hmm. a few weeks yep. ago, didn't we? Um, among other things. Um, and it follows the Chicago I should Seven. say, probably most famous for the West Wing. Yes. Yeah, which I've... So to say, I've never watched. Well, you know, you know what, Phil? Do you know what? I've only <laughs> yeah, seen go on. two episodes of the first oh, season okay. when it first came out in like 2000, I'm going to say, 2001. But um, I'm going to watch it because of this. Okay. So I think we should maybe do like wow. a, we could, we, could, we could maybe do like yeah, a I mean, lockdown this winter. Yeah, I've got a different uh, view of this, definitely. So, uh, yeah, so it follows the Chicago 7. They're a group of... Um, anti-Vietnam War processors, and they were charged with uh, conspiracy uh, and crossing state lines with the intention of inciting riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Now, I'm going to go, I'm going to go straight out there. And straight away, this is one of the best films I've seen in ages. It's I can't remember the last time a film has made me so genuinely exasperated, angry, and sad at an institution. And that sounds like bad things, but it's because the film is so good that it makes you feel like that. But it just goes to show how well it's been put together and how well written it is to make you feel like that. It's got a really impressive ensemble cast that includes, among others, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Michael Keaton, Frank Langella. It's just, the list goes on. The, the, the cast is absolutely phenomenal in this. I think it's been cast so well. Um, it's, you know, I'm not massively familiar with the events that um, inspired the film. I'm, you know, I don't know the history too much. I've looked up a little bit of it since, but... Uh, I did know about it, I think, in sort of the back, but I've never sort of studied it. Uh, and I'm guessing the elements of the story were they would obviously been uh, added to or over dramatized for for film. But it looks fantastic. It oozes that sort of late '60s era look. Um, it's really well paced. Um, but for me, it's it's the performances that steal the show with it. It's they are. I can't think of a bad performance in the film. I think they're all amazing. Um, and I expect it to do pretty well on the awards front, I should think. Um, but the standout for me was uh, Mark Rylance yeah. as the lawyer, William Kunstler. Um, careful how you say that one. It's with a K, everyone. Um, <laughs> and you can just feel every inch of disbelief and f- sheer frustration in that character. And you're, you, it basically makes you feel like you're there with him. Absolutely brilliant performance from him. Honourable mem- mention has to go to Frank Langella as, as as the judge, <laughs> Judge Julius Hoffman, uh, who did such a good job at being a complete what asshole. An absolute basically. asshole he is. What made you want to punch him square in his face in every scene, I think. You know what would happen, though, if, if he heard you say that? <laughs> he'd well, hold you in, he'd bang he'd hold you in contempt he'll hold me in contempt of court of course he would <laughs> um, receives 28 counts of contempt of court for this one <laughs> podcast so it's just yeah he does such a good job along with everyone else it's hard to like go into how good is the it his best in this. villain performance since Skeletor 
<laughs> I do you know what? Until I was like writing about this, I forgot that he played Skeletor in Masters of the Universe, like nineteen what eighty one yep. or whatever Opposite was that. Dolph Lundgren as He Man and Courtney Cox. Courtney Let's Cox not forget that. at the end though. If you ever stayed till the end of the credits, at the end of the credits, I had it on. I had it in on a video. Pre pre Marvel credit sting. Mm. Skeletor pops out of the whatever water he's in, some kind of watery thing. And looks straight at the camera, breaks the fourth wall, Frank Langella, and says, I'll be back. And you know what, listeners? (laughs) He was. In the the form of Judge Hoffman in The Trial of the Chicago 7. (laughs) (laughs) He is great in it, though. He is. Everyone's great. So apparently, yeah. I mean, I think maybe the one very, very slight criticism I have of it is that Sasha Baron Cohen, who also has an amazing performance in this, um, his accent was a little bit jarring for yeah. me. I think it was a bit off. It was a kind of, but what, was it like a... It, it, it's like a Boston like type a Peter accent. Griffin. Yeah. Like a put the box yeah. in the yard. But you could hear it slip Freaking sweet. I it's like, put the box in the yard. <laughs> so yeah, it's just... You know, that's like the I had only one in the slight gripe. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly yeah. like that, though. But other than that, amazing. Um, apparently, Aaron Sorkin, director, originally wrote the screenplay in 2007 with the intent of Spielberg uh, directing oh. it. Uh, and he was going to direct it with mostly unknown actors. Uh, but apparently, uh, I think in 2007, there was a writers guild yes. uh, of america yes, right. strike and there was yeah and there was budget concerns so they it basically spielberg dropped out and sorkin announced uh was announced as a director in 2018 well i'm so i'm glad I mean, they did to that. be honest he's so he's been working on his directorial gigs for the last few years he's been working on that he, he yeah. obviously he started out as a writer but if you um if you if you know his his stuff he it dates back to other courtroom dramas like a few good men you can't mm-hmm. handle the truth um, you know, he's got pedigree here. He recently directed on Broadway as well. One flew over the cuckoo's nest with Jeff Daniels. So, yep. you know, he, he's this kind of courtroom drama is definitely, definitely kind of fits in, um, as well to his, his kind of back, his kind of background. Um, you know, he did the Steve Jobs screenplay, he did, uh, the social network, Charlie Wilson's war. Um, I love everything he does, to be honest. I really do. I really do. Mm-hmm. I really want to. I think we should suggest that we go back and do like a rewatch of The West Wing um, during yeah, during the I'll winter, perhaps. Right you know, and I think that might be might be good re- a rewatch that we can catch up with the listeners on as they as they go through it. Um, mm-hmm. I have nothing else to add to what you said. I think I completely agree with everything you say. One of the best films I've seen this year, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I also mm-hmm. want to also highlight Jeremy Strong's performance for for those of you that watch Succession. He plays Kendall Roy, uh, so he's you know it's absolutely okay. amazing his descent into madness on that one. Um, so yeah, so no Trial of Chicago Seven. I would say hundred percent it's up there with some of the very best this year, and agree with Phil on everything that you just said. I sat down. <laughs> speaking of Sasha Baron Cohen, I sat down uh, to to watch i say watch i'm I, this is more like i didn't know, necessarily watch this i think i absorbed uh my couch into my anal sphincter while cringing <laughs> at some of the comedy on display it is of course borat subsequent movie film or for its full title 
Borat's subsequent movie film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit One's Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, this is cringe-centric uh, cringe-ahoy. Um, if you've seen the yeah. original uh, Borat, uh, no surprises here. So this mockumentary sees Sasha Baron Cohen return as the titular Borat, this time having cast great shame on his native country of Kazakhstan with his previous exploits. He's tasked by his local government to travel to the US to gift a pornographic monkey to Mike Pence in order to solidify a relationship between the two great countries. Borat this time is joined by his daughter, Jutar, played here by the excellent Bulgarian actress Maria Bakalova, um, who's like fully game, like fully on point with Borat. Because, of course, as with the original... Um, this is inducing laughs from real-world scenarios as Borat engages, Borat and Chutar engage with real people, unbeknownst to the cameras, unbeknownst to the joke, and sees him, for example, play a concert at a Republican rally, singing about how scientists should be treated like they are in Saudi Arabia, uh, hunkering down with two local hillbillies during the COVID lockdown uh, that basically take him into their house, and he ends up living with them. Uh, and as seen in the <laughs> right. news recently... Uh, an interview with uh, Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, which descends into a potential Me Too mo- moment in a hotel room. I did hear about this. Um, yeah. So more of the same, but the world needs Borat now more than ever. I would say so. Instead of a recommendation, I shall simply give this a more pertinent. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant yeah i'm yet to watch it but i can imagine my own face being consumed by itself uh out of sheer um just your own face will be consumed by your anal sphincter <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um what else did i watch so i i sat down so that the next review i i sat down to watch the witches um this is the new Robert Zemeckis directed version of the classic Roald Dahl story, The Witches. Um, I'm sure a lot of people remember the the classic 1990 Angelica Houston starring version. And this one, whilst faithful in many ways to the original, I think it, it puts a, quite a different spin on it. Um, I guess the main being that instead of being set in Norway in the 80s, this is set in Alabama in the late 60s. So that's quite a big spin. <laughs> um, so it tells the story of a young orphan boy who goes to live with his grandma in the rural town of Demopolis. Um, and after a few encounters with a witch, his grandma takes him away to a, like a posh uh, seaside resort hotel. But unfortunately for them, uh, as they arrive, it's just in time for the... Uh, it's like a witch's conference where the Grand High Witch has gathered her fellow kid-hating coven members from around the globe to carry out her dastardly plans. Um, again, it, you know, performances are all around are good in this. It's it's that classic sort of over-the-top and exaggerated uh, Disney-type acting. It's not a Disney, but it is, you know, it's that kind of like over-the-top theatre school act acting that you need in this kind of like you know family friendly um adventure film uh Anne Hathaway who plays the Grand High Witch she does a great job but with a 
slightly dodgy accent again i'm all about the accents today i think but she uh she does a slightly dodgy accent as the grand high witch uh octavia spencer she plays the really endearing kick-ass grandma uh and yazir bruno is brilliant in the role of uh his character name weirdly is hero boy <laughs> um in this so yeah it's um he does a really good job as well and it's nice to see stanley tucci as the exasperated owner of the hotel mr stringer which in the original was played by uh rowan atkinson He's, he is none more tucci in this isn't he none more tucci. He's none more tucci yeah you can't yeah that's right um I think one criticism I've got for it is the narration, which is throughout from Chris Rock. And I just found it because his voice is so distinctive and a bit grating in a way, I found it a little bit distracting. (laughs) Um, There's nothing against Chris Rock at all. I think he's brilliant. He's really funny, but yeah, I just found his voiceover a bit weird. Um, uh i will say however and this is in no small part due to the production and screenplay writing of the brilliant gilmero del toro of this film that if i saw this as a small kid i would have been pretty scared i probably would have shit my pants um i was completely not expecting it and you know the original's got some you know it's very practical effect in the original like you know, animatronic stuff and really good makeup and stuff. But there's loads of CGI in this, but good CGI. And But when the witches are in full witch mode, they've got really, like, creepy gash mouths. So, like, their lips are torn at the sides and you can see all of their teeth. They've got, like, three-fingered claw hands that are covered by gloves normally. And their feet can only be explained in no other way other than they look like they're flipping you the bird. <laughs> it's like their feet have just got like one singular claw that permanently looks like it's giving you the finger. Um, not to mention they've got like wig. <laughs> it's, it's like not to mention they've got like wig sores on their head. And and the most terrifying thing is the utterly terrifying ability of the Grand High Witch to extend her arms to whatever angular length she desires, which is terrifying. And it's weird because when I saw that scene, I was like, oh my God, this is pretty messed up. And I thought that's just like something straight out of Pan's Labyrinth or something like that. And then I didn't know that Gilmero del Toro was involved in this. And then I saw yep. the credits. I was like, straight away, that's, that's, you can see why now, straight away, that, that it, it's his kind of brilliant thing. And he's the master of it, I think. But, you know, all in all, it's it's really good fun. It's creepy. It's over the top. And it's it's very faithful um, to the original. If There's a really good uh, side-by-side, like shot-by-shot yeah. video on uh, online that you can see. And it's, it's very good. Um, good fun. And, yeah, it's available to rent now on all good streaming. It certainly platforms. is. Uh, I believe it's available in the US on HBO Max. So you can, if you've got a subscription to that in the US, you can watch that right away. And it's really good. I I also enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Kind of scary. Recommendation. Um, The, uh, she's no Angelica Houston and Hathaway. There's no Mm. Jim Henson version of her head in this one. No. (laughs) Definitely scary. I actually felt, I was actually creeped out by it. Um, And, but I do want to give a shout out to Alan Silvestri, who's none more kind of John Williams-esque if not, you know, better 
score in this i thought it was really good i really enjoyed the music to this score yeah really good yeah um, i mean it's alan sylvester yeah it is but be... and I, I remember watching it and thinking well it's got to be alan sylvester it's, it's either alan sylvester michael giacchino or john williams and and mm. it came up at the end i didn't actually know and uh really good and also octavia spencer as the grandma i thought she was brilliant she's great yeah really she was brilliant yeah um so yeah definite recommendation nice one phil yeah. Uh, that was it for you, I guess. I, I went one more, and uh, this is the fifth film that I watched this week. There's always room for one There's more. always room for one more. <laughs> <laughs> if any of you listeners can get that quote, please send us a message and let us know what you think that is. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is On The Rocks. Apple TV brings us... U.S. director Sofia Coppola of Lost in Translation Somewhere, The Virgin Suicides, and The Bling Ring Fame movie uh, for another Bill Murray indie comedy romp. This time, teaming up with his on-screen daughter, Parks and Rec alum Rashida Jones, as stay-at-home mum Laura. Laura suspects her husband, played by Marlon Wyans, might be committing adultery, so she and her dad decide to try and catch him in the act. Um, that's the plot, basically. Uh, Rashida Jones, Bill Murray teaming up, uh, following her husband around town, around New York. Um, a lot of fun. It's very slight, um, an enjoyable movie. It doesn't hang around in your head. Um, but Bill Murray is brilliant here. I don't, I don't think Bill Murray's been this good in a long time. Um, right. He's basically playing an older Peter Venkman. This is Peter Venkman uh, in the later years with, a, with an adult daughter his character Felix appears to have a lover in every port. He knows every doorman of every hotel in every major city around the world and all the best spots to grab a, a Bombay martini in New York City. Um, definitely made me miss Manhattan, uh, but the pre-COVID version of Manhattan because it's, it's where it's based. Um, I quite enjoyed this. It doesn't hit the heights of a Lost in Translation or a Virgin Suicide. It's not a work of, of genius. Um, but it's the kind of movie that we need right now. And considering it's free to watch right now on Apple TV Plus, fans of, of Bill Murray, Rashida Jones, um, uh, or Sofia Coppola, you should absolutely give this a spin. Um, I got a lot of pleasure from this. Maybe make yourself a couple of drinks, sit down and watch it, and uh, try and memorize the password to your partner's cell phone. So, as ever... It's time for this. So, Phil, last show was your choice with the <clears throat> incredible Bruce Willis movie, Mercury Rising. <laughs> Shut up. You liked it. Incredible. Uh, lemon, don't throw my wine, lemon. <laughs> lemon. This week it was my choice, thank God, and it's Halloween, so I wanted to go something uh, for something a little more spookier. Notably, a film that scared the living piss out of me when I was about twelve, and I, I at my friend Dave Brown's house for a sleepover in the mid nineties. And that's what this, this film gave me. It gave me a right case of the Dave Browns. Um, <laughs> I haven't watched it since. So since about 95, I think when I, when I 95, 96. 
So I was really mm. keen to see if this movie was as scary as I have thought it was uh, all these years later in the hope that Phil would poop his pants in fright. It, it is, of course, 1992's The Candyman. The Candyman. Do you have memories of this when you were a kid? Like, Do you remember watching this when you were younger? You know what? I watched uh, not as much as a lot of other horrors of right. this era. Um, this is obviously written by Clive Barker. Yep the horror genius behind Hellraiser, among other things. And I was more terrified by Hellraiser. Really? That's one of my... Hellraiser's This brilliant. goes to places Hellraiser. a bit like Hellraiser, though. But we'll come back to that. It does. We'll it's very... That. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Because, it, yeah, it's a really but good point. But what do you remember but of this? Remind me of like, what, what... I remember... Um, I just remember the the sort of legend of the Candyman. Like, there's that whole thing, like which it is in the film. It's the whole muttering in... You know, a, you have mirror, to say like his name times. five times in a mirror, and he will appear and murder you, basically. Yeah, yeah. So you know that goes around schools and stuff like at that age, did it? It's not a day to do yeah. that. Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, I don't have huge memories of this. Uh, I definitely haven't watched it for. The, if I've seen it, which I can't remember, I've probably watched parts of it before, but I certainly haven't watched it as an adult. Right. Um, yeah. Okay, so let, let me just outline the plot here for you. So this follows sceptical graduate students Helen, played by uh, Virginia Madsen, and Anne-Marie McCoy, played by Vanessa Williams, not Dennis Caleb McCoy from Bill and Ted Face the Music, while researching superstitions in a housing project on Chicago's near north side. From Anne-Marie, Helen learns about the Candyman, played by Tony Todd, a hook-wielding figure of urban legend that some of her neighbours believe to be responsible for a spate of recent murders. After a mysterious man matching the Candyman's description begins to reveal himself to her, um, not in that way, Helen comes to fear that the legend may be all too real. So, oh no. Oh no. So this, I, I genuinely, I was scared about watching this. I was honestly, for years, I revered this as a terrifying movie um, <laughs> yeah i mean you did send me a photo while you were watching it of the opening credits which are the least scary thing but in the world saying oh, i'm already but scared just so the build-up with the um the music and the following the cars around the freeways and stuff like that just <laughs> tell you what though just on those because the the soundtrack to this is done by philip glass really who's a very really famous, i didn't very famous composer and the soundtrack on this is great, yes. like really yeah. good, really, really good. So that's one of the positives. Yeah, it's, very, it's piano led, isn't it? I found myself very, I was tapping away. Yep. I was tapping the old fingers away as if I was tinkling the ivories <laughs> on this one. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is directed by Bernard Rose, um, who directed a few things. Um <laughs> Uh, but obviously, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, written by uh, Clive Barker and based on on the Forbidden, and uh, also uh, adapted by by Bernard Rose as well, the director, um, starring Virginia Madsen. We have as Helen Lyle is the is the main character. She's married to her high school professor, uh, not high school or university professor, I should say, Xander Berkeley, Trevor Lyle. People who will remember Xander Berkeley from two major roles of his. Number one. George Mason in 24 
as in the Kiefer Sutherland show. He was incredible mm. in in Twenty Four. He's my favorite yeah. character, George Mason. Um, but everyone's going to know him as Todd in Terminator Two when when Todd, yeah, the Foster, the foster dad. dad who gets the T one thousand with the the kind of sword hand go through his milk bottle into his milk. mouth. <laughs> Can't I don't know. Also, Air Force One though. Uh, also Air Force One, Air Force yes, One yes, yeah, 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 he is, yeah, also in that. I mean, he pops up in a lot of things. He's a great character actor, but he gets a he gets a kind mm. of major role in this as a shadowy uh, Professor uh, Trevor. <laughs> um, we also have, uh, of, of of course, um, Vanessa Williams as Anne Marie McCoy, who's really good. I think uh, we have uh, Bernadette by Casey Lemons. Um, and you know the cast is kind of made out with a bunch of other characters we should say uh, that don't really have much involvement in the plot other than the rocket man himself tony todd (laughs) why do i say the rocket man phil because of uh he was in the rock the best action (laughs) film of all time not only was he in the rock he was projectiled off of the rock he was an absolute psycho. He was projectiled off of the rock by a rocket after saying that Elton John movie, uh, Elton John songs are soft and he doesn't like soft ass shit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like soft ass Nicholas- shit. And then <laughs> Nicholas Cage is like, do you like the song The Rocket Man? <laughs> are you familiar with the Elton John song The Rocket Man? I don't like soft ass shit. Well, that's you. You're the rocket man. Presses the button, fires a rocket. <laughs> Tony Todd goes flying out the fucking window on the rocket of Alcatraz. Of Alcatraz. I mean, what a scene. Then lands on a on a Brilliant. the the stake of a barbed wire fence. Oh yeah, the spike like it's like a yeah. So he gets like <sighs> impaled through yeah. the gut. Like he ge- what an end. What a what a death. All we can say is Candyman gets his comeuppance in the rock. <laughs> <laughs> he does. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but he's also been in The Crow and Night of the Living Dead and Platoon. He's you know he's been in a lot of stuff. Oh, for me, he's just he is the Candy Man or the Rocket Man. The Candy he's one Man. or the other. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, sweets for my sweet. What? Um, w- so, what do you think of this? What was it as scary as you th- as you thought it was when you were a kid? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it's all that. Uh, it's based around that superstition stuff, and the first thing that I had a problem with <laughs> was that she was and then but i mean i was proved i've been proved completely wrong by uh some real life facts after this but she says that the legend goes that he creeped through like in her apartment the the mirror you could open that like, you could pull it off the wall and the only thing behind it was like the uh, the next door apartment's mirror so right. there's basically like a hole right. in the wall that they just filled yep. with mirrors right I was like, that's absolute bullshit. Why would, who on earth would design a building where the only thing between two apartments would be like two plastic cheap bathroom mirrors? Ah, well, but, the plot revolves around two buildings that were built for projects, so they didn't really care. They just left it unfinished. Yeah, I, I get that. But I've actually read since then that uh, it's, it's actually true. <laughs> Like that, there was some actual murders, and the person actually killed people by going through a hole between two bathrooms. Yeah. So, so take that, Phil, with your building you knowledge. Skeptical <laughs> fuck. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a there's some there's some good stuff in this. Mm. There's um, one thing I really particularly like is the vocal effect that's used the entire time for Helen. Helen, I want to try and like if I can, and if the listeners don't hear any difference in a minute, then uh, I've not managed it. But if uh, I want to try and recreate that effect in post-processing, uh, because it's brilliant. It's, it's just like a really boomy, um, and it's got like a slight echo on it, but it's really sort of like, like it's coming from, like his voice is coming from elsewhere, like from behind you or all around you, isn't it? Well, let's, sort of really let's give it a quite... try. You can try it with my audio. Ready? All right, go on then. I am writing on the wall. The whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. Did that work? I don't know. <clears throat> I feel like I need I a, mean, if not, a good throat sweet or a cough drop. <laughs> yeah, you need a little cough drop popped in there. Uh, I'll try. But, you know, if they didn't hear anything different, then it's just Miles doing a rough voice. Helen... Be my victim. Be my victim. (laughs) Be my next victim. And then my favorite line of his, because we're going to go through the favorite lines, I'm sure. My favorite line of the Candyman is, What's blood for, if not for shedding? With my hook for a hand, I'll split you from groin to gut. (laughs) It's amazing. Amazing. That's a threat and a fucking half, that, isn't it? Jesus Christ. Someone walked up to me in the street and told me that. I'd be like, uh, bye. Yeah. <laughs> groin to gullet, which, and you mentioned it earlier on, sweets for my sweet. Both of those things, the groin to gullet and the sweets for my sweet things are actually quotes from uh, Shakespeare plays. Is that right? Sweets for my sweet is yep. it's from Shakespeare. It's from Hamlet, oh, wow. I think. Something like that. And the groin to gullet, it's said in a different way. It's like from Nate to Yeah, Nate, Nate to Nate, Nate or something, yeah. Yeah, Nathan so Nathan. that's from yeah. another. Uh, that's from another. Um, that rings a bell. Yeah. Thing. Oh, that's interesting. So there's some Shakespeare Ooh, in well there. Well done, you, darling. Check me out. Oh, with my research. darling Shakespeare, the Scottish play. <laughs> um, I, I really talking about lines. I really liked. Your death will be a tale to frighten children, to make lovers cling closer in their rapture. Come with me and be immortal. Yeah, I mean it's full on. That's Clive Barker. Yeah. But who would you say is your favourite character in this? Um, probably Candyman, just because he's he's awesome. Candy really. He's the right gent. He's quite a gent, really. Isn't he, he is. He's very he's well, cute. He's very well dressed. dressed. Very well dressed. I appreciate um, if someone's going to kill me with a fucking hook. I appreciate that they dress up for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Put on a tux. Yeah, he's got sh- shiny shoes. Put on a tux and gut me from. Groin to gullet. Gut. <laughs> Groin to gullet. Right at the top there. Um, yeah. Here's a question I mean, for you. Did you... That, there's, there's that whole story where the kid is in the toilet. He gets killed in a public toilet. Does he rip his dick off and, and put it in the toilet? Yeah, he does. Yeah, they find <laughs> the floating in the toilet. <laughs> I mean, that bit's pretty but it's messed not explained, up. Isn't it? is it? Not really. You just see the kid laying on the floor <laughs> no. holding like his... Like abdomen, like ah, rolling in pain, and then you see a guy that goes to look in the toilet, and there's a load of blood in the toilet, but you don't really see why. 
So the assumption is well, I'm glad about that. he's made that his penis has been ripped off and thrown in the toilet. Does that kid survive? I think they, uh, yeah, I think they said he did. Yeah. yeah, that was some pretty hilarious dialogue about that kid as well, but I won't repeat it on on air because it was of its time, I should say. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of this film is of its time. Yeah. Um, what about that? You know, when they introduce the, um, uh, when they introduce like this, the Candyman legend, and that they're at dinner, and they there's that British guy who's like <laughs> Stephen with really Fry, long hair. Yeah, it's basically it's not Stephen Fry, but it basically <laughs> is Stephen Fry with like a lion's mane. It's Stephen Fry, and <laughs> and like it, they're like chatting in the back. Him and um, Trevor, uh, what's his name? Mm-hmm. Trevor mm-hmm. and Berkeley are like talking, aren't they? But it's in like the background. They're sort of not focusing on the conversation. Oh, yeah. But did you hear what he actually said? What did he say? He's when they're having this background chat, you can actually hear it picked up. And he goes, Oh, 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 she spat all over me. Rather strange. That was the subtitle. <laughs> that was in the subtitles. No, it wasn't the subtitle. It's just what he said. So weird. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that, that guy. I think for me, I think he might be my favorite character, that guy, just because he just turns up. He's weird. To just be this, like, he turns up there and British at the end. prick, like, professor. He's at, he's at the. He's at the funeral. Oh at yeah, the end, he is. Yeah, it. he turns up at the end. Well, let's yeah. get to that. We'll get to that. So, um, okay. so favorite character for you, Tony Todd, uh, Candyman. For me, yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm, I was joking. I'm, I'm going to give it to Helen. I think she's a good, good fucking character. I think she's got, you know, she's well rounded. Yeah. She's driven, motivated. She's going after what she believes, you know, and she doesn't give a shit about anyone else. Um, you know, obviously, she gets very, very hard done by by Trevor, but we'll come back to that. What would you say is your yeah. is your favorite scene? Um, I quite like the the scene with the the hospital psychiatrist because <laughs> uh, it's really unexpected, like what happens because she, you know, she gets arrested for various yeah. things in the end for various mm-hmm. murders that she didn't actually do, and. Um, she is being assessed or did by she? the or did she hospital. or did she or we don't know do we but yeah then she uh she's getting assessed by the hospital psychiatrist and she's trying to prove that the candy man's real and that he shows her some video of a scene that you'd seen earlier where she is talking to the candy man but he's not actually there on the cctv footage of it all and um then she says i can prove he's real i can prove he's real so she looks at the mirror in his office and says candy man five times and then he just like looks at her like you're you're mental, and then out of nowhere, the candy man appears. No, he doesn't. He doesn't appear. Hook, his, his hook, hook appears, appears yeah. <laughs> through the gut of the from the behind of uh, through like the, the, chair, the psychiatrist yeah. through through the chair through the through his gut and pulls all the way upwards. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like really unexpected. But the best part about that scene is that then. For no apparent reason, the Candyman just flies backwards Doesn't out he? of a window. That's he the... just jumps back. You can clearly see the wire. I know, well. and, and the <laughs> weird more... like blue sky background that's not quite right. No, not real, yeah, because it was, yeah, it was. Uh, I love that scene. We get Unexpe- sucked out the window, unexpected, and then he sucks out of a window. Remind no me reason. that Bond movie when the, he shoots the the plane, the the glass, and the shoots the glass. Shoot and Finchter. Shoot the glass. Finchter. Shoot the glass. <laughs> Um, and he gets sucked out of the plane, and that was it basically yeah. that on it. Tony Todd hmm. got sucked out of the window, but it was like the third floor Brilliant. or something. Um, yeah, great scene, great scene. I think 
What about yours? For me, it's tough. Maybe the first scene where she, I, I yeah, for me, it's the first scene where the Candyman has appeared to her, and in the parking lot, Helen. Helen. Never has the name Helen been said more in a movie than in this movie. Everyone is like, Helen! Like, Trevor's like, hey, Helen! And then her friend's like, hey, Helen, how's it going? And, and then you hear the candyman. Helen! And just everyone's saying Helen. It's like, all right, Jesus her name's Christ, Helen. it's fucking Helen, all right? Um, <laughs> I get it. But yeah, the, the scene where Candyman first appears to Helen, she's all happy in her life, investigating stuff, blah 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 and then bang. Candyman appears and she gets sucked into the apartment of Bernadette. She's in the uh, the toilet. She wakes up. She's on the floor. There's blood everywhere. She's in some kind of mm. negligee. Uh, she has a knife next to her. She opens the door. There is a dog's head on the floor covered in blood. I'm against cruelty to animals, but this was a cool scene. She walks through the lounge <laughs> into the bedroom where she hears screaming of Bernadette with her child. In the crib. Really hor- horrific screaming. Yes, horrific well. screaming. You see blood splattered all up the wall in the crib, everything, and the baby is gone. Bernadette's baby. Bernadette is this uh, woman who lives in the projects that they went to interview about the Candyman, and she's inexplicably now in her house with a knife. And you don't believe that she's actually there. But uh, anyway, so she walks into the room with a knife in her hand, uh, Helen, and uh, you know she's not trying to kill her or anything. And then uh, Bernadette attacks her, and then for no apparent mm-hmm. reason, the police arrive. And kick the door in and arrest Helen. And this is when I think this is where it goes into that Hellraiser for me, that kind of Hellraiser vibe where we realize that maybe there's this kind of dream world, this kind of strange, you know, goings on that are happening. Um, This is the only time we actually see Helen kind of uh, transport from one location to another, as far as I remember. Yeah. Pretty sure she doesn't transport around other than in this moment. Like when uh, Anne-Marie gets killed, she gets killed in the uh, apartment that she's in. In the apartment, you know, yeah. He just, right. he just, no, he right, just appears yeah. to her. Um, yeah. And and later on in the office of the uh, the psychiatrist. So that scene for me, I really like that. It, 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 that's kind of stuck with me. That My favorite scene when I was a kid or the scene that scared me the most as a kid is when Anne-Marie gets killed. And then later on, Helen's being arrested and she kind of stands up and, and we see Anne-Marie, her friend, laying on the floor, all kind of grey and pale. <laughs> She's yeah. grey. She's good you know, blue, you know what's basically. Weird? When blue. I was a kid, like I remember this as a kid, she was like chunks on the floor. She was just like chunks with a, with a grey face. Uh, yeah, I remember oh, really? she was just a puddle of like grey chunks on the floor and like blood. <laughs> and now... It wasn't that bad. Now it was like the scene in Step Brothers when... Um, uh, Dale and Brennan are trying to stop people from buying their parents' house. And Brennan, Will Ferrell, paints himself grey and wraps himself in yeah. a in a shower curtain. And Dale is rocking yeah. him on his lap going, oh my god, Brennan, you're dead, Brennan. Come back to me, Brennan. And the people walk in to buy the house and they're like, oh, they run out screaming. Like, literally, it was like yeah. that. It was literally like that. It is a bit like that. It's a bit comedy-inducing, yeah. isn't it? It's like a, a zombie from the original Dawn of the Dead, which are just people painting exactly. grey. Question, question. Mm, yes. Was every every line of dialogue in this recorded afterwards? Because the whole thing, like, they're, they're, you can tell that they're not speaking. Like, it's been dubbed by them. Again, it's like ADR. 
No. 100%. No. 100%. No. It's all like the overemphasized that. words. Hey, Helen, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? But there's no ambient noise, no background noise. No, I think it's just very sensitive mics. No. They've got like film in it. No, I don't think it's been overdubbed. All right. Agree to disagree, Philip. You you are the musician, oh, so oh, you've oh, got you've got the uh, you've got the musician's ears. Um, <laughs> so I I mean yeah, this wasn't as scary as I thought it was. Like you said, uh, it wasn't as good as I remembered it was. It was quite low budget. <laughs> that I remembered. I had, yeah. It was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun watching it. Um, not as much fun as I thought I was going to. To be perfectly no. honest. Um, bring us some trivia. It's Phil's Trivia Corner. I mean, there's some good trivia for this. So I'll start that by saying that there's a scene in this towards the end where, um, what's her name? Oh, Helen. Yeah, Helen. <laughs> you know, the name that gets muttered a thousand times. Do you remember last week <laughs> when one of the characters in something we were discussing was called Miles and you forgot that name? Yeah. A forgettable fucking name. Idiot. <laughs> um, Personally, I think so, you're yeah, a fucking Hel- idiot. <laughs> Helen is in uh, the Candyman's, well, not apartment. This is like <laughs> shell shell of a building. <laughs> and Candyman's uh, apartment. What is he paying rent? Is he paying for the electricity? <laughs> He's not paying. Rent. Uh, what's his decor like? And so there's a, quite a famous scene in this where basically they both have bees on them. Bees feature this. In this bees. I would like to know credits. about this. I would like to know about. Go on. Yeah, bees, bees feature bees everywhere. In, I think this is to, yeah, I think this is to do with the original sort of story and legend sort of thing. But bees feature very heavily in the opening credits. Bees feature in that uh, toilet scene. Yeah, there's <laughs> bees in the toilet. Killed. She opens the toilet and the, the toilet's yeah. full and of bees. And she flushes them. She flushes then, them down the fucking toilet. Like hundreds of yeah, bees. Yeah, how mean. Well, she doesn't actually. She flushed like, the toilet. Yeah, but. I know she did, but like not in real life. Like at that point, I was against to, Helen. To... I was like, "Helen's fucking crazy." <laughs> Fuck yeah. you, Helen. Um, and then at the end, actually did it. Like both of them, there's bees all over them. Like literally bees in Tony Todd's mouth, <laughs> bees coming out of him, bees over her face and her body, everywhere. Like bees everywhere, True. basically hundreds and thousands True. of bees. So, <laughs> the trivia I've got for this is that uh, <laughs> uh, Tony Todd negotiated a bonus of a thousand dollars for every bee sting he suffered during filming good god how many bee stings did he get 23 (laughs) 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 he made a lot of money just for being stung i'd do that in his mouth well everywhere i don't know it doesn't say where he he has bees in his fucking mouth he has bees in his mouth i'm sure they put something in his mouth to stop the bees going in that far but yeah um but uh, what I do know is that um, <laughs> what I do know, know what Homer does when he use... goes to the in the Simpsons when he the chili, <laughs> the chili festival, festival puts wax in his mouth drinks wax yeah <laughs> why so he I can think... slip the chili why down. did I think Tony Todd pouring <laughs> candle wax into his mouth would stop him getting stung by bees <laughs> <laughs> it's protective wax Bee, bees wax $23,000 um, or a Yankee candle in the gullet it's either or yeah I mean, so there's the budget gone on Tony Todd's bee sting clause in his contract. Wow. But apparently they use very, very young bees. Like they had lots of bee people or bee handlers on. Sorry, bee they handlers. Use young bees. What do they call them? They use very young bees because their stings aren't fully developed, but they can still sting, but they're not Venomous. as like, violent as 
venomous as like okay. uh, adult bees, mm-hmm. apparently, from what I've read. I'm not a bee expert. Um, I beg to differ so... after that uh, trivia. <laughs> so more trivia. So that was the bee trivia. So that would relate to the bee scene. The bee scene. Um, the bee scene. So whilst investigating one of Candyman's crime scenes, Helen and Bernadette discover that the design of the apartment's medicine cabinet made it a possible point of entry for an intruder. So this is what I said earlier on. This is not a made-up piece of horror movie fiction. While researching the film, Rose learned that a series of murders had been committed in Chicago in this very way. Oh, so, so it's weird. legit. It's climbing through the window. It's actually legit. They're climbing through the thing, yeah. Um, here's, a good one. here's a good couple of bits about potential replacements for the cast. <laughs> so on the DVD commentary... You won't believe what Because it's going to be the best. I really want to see it. Can, so can I just say, so funny. I haven't read the trivia page on IMDb. No, I told him not to for this. on okay. purpose so that he's okay. not seen this. So My reaction this, this is real. He's like, you're yeah, Borat I mean, one... and I'm Rudy Giuliani right now. I'm going to put my hand in my yeah. pants. This one's believable, right? This one you can okay. completely see. So it says on the DVD commentary, Alan Paul uh, said that Virginia Madsen had been, if she'd been unavailable, the part of Helen would have most likely gone to the then unknown Sandra Bullock. Nice. nice. Fair enough. I could have seen that. 100%. This, this, I could not see. And I laughed out loud when I read this. Eddie Murphy was considered for the title role. but was deemed too short at five foot nine. So they chose Tony Todd for his height at six foot five. Eddie Murphy is the candy man. He'd be like, Helen. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? Hey, put a banana in your tailpipe. Hey, Helen. Hey, Helen. You ever seen a hook on a man? Oh my God. I want to see Eddie Murphy as Candyman. I'm going to cut you from gut to gullet. <laughs> 100%. Want to see that. So that's amazing. Make it happen, Hollywood. <laughs> Make it happen. Uh, this is an interesting one. So the film's opening credits feature a gi- uh, like a, a, an aerial view of Chicago. Yep. Uh, and this was awesome. apparently very revolutionary for its time. Um, so this was 1992. So there's a quote that says, what what we did uh, with an incredible new machine called the Skycam, which can shoot up to a uh, 500-millimeter lens with no vibration, mm. Bern- Bernard Rolls tells The Independent, you've never seen that shot before, at least not done that smoothly. Yeah. So apparently that was quite... Because it is just like a what now would be a piece of piss with a drone. Well, what it looks like, yeah, it would. What it looks like is looks like a GoPro. For those of you that grew up before Grand Theft Auto Three, it's like the top down (laughs) Grand Theft Auto games. Do you remember the old PlayStation One PC? Just like that, basically that. Um, And and those scenes were recreated actually in it's a really nice effect in Zodiac, David Fincher's Zodiac, and you see the bird's eye view of I think a a taxi that um, Mark Ruffalo is in as he's pursuing yeah. a, or approaching a crime scene and the camera f- follows the car as it turns the streets. Really cool. But yeah, that, that's what that reminds me like of. That. Awesome scene. That was really good. That's the opening credits. Really good. Um, the original story takes place in a fictional British housing project called Bob's Is Corner. Is that right? <laughs> Bob's Corner. <Yeah. laughs> Bob's Bob. Corner. Bob, oh, Bob. That sounds Corner. like something we would have watched um, as kids, was not it? Like a kid's TV show. Bob's All right, Corner, kids. Yeah, like welcome to Bob's Corner. Corner. I'm Bob. And this is my magical <laughs> frog, John. And he's going to tell you all about the candy man. <laughs> Hello there, uh, tell all about the uh, candy man. <laughs> Bob's, 
Yeah, Bob's, Bob's Corner. Corner. And it's Frog it John. Place in a fictional... <laughs> um, yeah, so that's weird. Bob Fleming. Because it's <laughs> Bob Fleming. So it says that the original... So it was set there in... It was meant to be set in the in the late seventies in Bob's Corner in Britain, <laughs> <laughs> but the the movie moves the setting to a nineties Chicago and the real life slum of Cabrini Green. Oh God! Um, the change in setting also makes the bonfire, mm-hmm. which is an integral part of the later part of the film, seem out of place, as the original bonfire is part of the traditional Guy Fawkes Night ah. celebration. So, can we just talk about that for a sec? So, at the end of the movie. Yeah. A big bonfire is constructed outside of the project of Cabrini Green. Um, Helen awakes to find the baby in the Candyman's apartment, to quote Phil. Um, <laughs> saves the baby. No, it doesn't save the baby. Here's the baby. Looks outside and sees a giant bonfire. Runs down to the bonfire. Goes inside the bonfire. I was loving that whole scene, by the way. The bonfire hasn't been lit yet. It's just a load of like junk on a pile. It's just a pile yeah, of she's junk. Just like, I love that scene where she was like climbing in the bonfire it was about there's about five yeah. minutes of watching her sift through detritus in the bonfire it was a bit long she was going on yeah. and on and she was just like throwing old chairs around yeah. like old piss stained chairs moving a pallet, moving out the pallet. Way. go on helen i was sitting there it was like a spectator spot I was like, go on helen you shift that pallet <laughs> go girl go on um and uh, eventually she climbs inside the bonfire she finds the baby of bernadette uh to save him and then the candy man appears and of course uh some of the some of the people in the project they see helen they throw gasoline on the fire because they assume that Helen is actually the candy man. Well, all he sees of her is a hook. she does have a hook in her hand at that point, which she picked up from the floor to try and attack the candy man with, which she does. But all he the 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 young kid sees is the her hand going into hook. the uh pyre. Yeah. Pile. Pallet, Good word. Pile. Yeah. Um uh, so he thinks, oh no, shit! The Candyman's in there. There's light. Get rid of him. Yeah, and so they just they um, they amass a group of people to set the thing on fire. Um, Helen's inside. Um, this is where it gets horrific. The Candyman turns up. Oh, come with me, Helen. We're going to die. The pain. Give in to the pain. You'll love the pain, Helen. Um, Helen. Helen. <laughs> this is when Alec Baldwin appears with a with an open <laughs> bottle of 1967 Lemon. Cabernet. And says, Helen, yeah. come with me, Helen. <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, the, the flames start. They engulf the, the bonfire. Helen is she, Helen does a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, like a tiger crawl out of the... Commando a, Like crawl. a commando crawl out of the fire. And then a giant beam falls on her, the flaming beam. And then we see from the top-down view, we see what appears to be a man in a wig. <laughs> Crawling out <laughs> on fire. <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty bad. He's a man in a wig in a nurse's uniform, crawling out of a bonfire on fire, and then the hair, the wig catches on fire. I was like, "This is fucking brilliant. This is it. <laughs> this is it." Uh, and then they put her out, and then we see that she's been put out. The baby gets saved, so they know that she saved the baby, and she's not actually the candy man. She was there saving the baby all along. Hope they see bad. the corpse of the burning candy man as well, so they they, do, they yeah. recognize. And then we pan back to Helen, who inexplicably, all of her hair has now been burned off of her head. And she's just laying there flaming. Very reminiscent of a um, a burned on Mustafa Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, just like that. I was waiting, <laughs> I was waiting for her to be reconstructed by uh, Emperor Palpatine and just shout, 
Helen! No! No! Yeah. I mean, mm. yeah, that's a weird scene, isn't it? A little bit of trivia just for that scene. That was uh, the fire stuff was done by the same team that did the fire stuff for the backdraft film. Wow, well, there you go. <laughs> I know all the stuff, you know. Um, after that, we see, I think, one of the best endings in movie film history. Which is, yeah. <laughs> which is spoiler. Yeah, everyone that is listening to this, you're either never going to watch this movie, or you should fucking watch it immediately. Pause and there, and now get ready for the end. Ready? Okay. Xander Berkeley as Trevor, her husband, has been fucking one of her students, one of his students behind her back all this time. Has decorated his apartment. She's moved in, and do you know what? He's made a terrible choice, hasn't he, Phil? Right. Awful terrible. choice. He's sitting on the toilet. He, she's banging on the door asking about what they're going to have for dinner, throwing steak around the kitchen. And he is sitting on the toilet that he used to share with Helen, thinking, what have I done with myself? What have I done with my life? I miss Helen. I miss Helen. I miss Helen. He stands up. He's Because she's dead. You haven't said that. She's dead. Well, I mean, she got burnt to a fucking she crisp. Died in and the she died Was it not clear that she yeah. got burnt to a fucking crisp? No, it wasn't. Okay. Because at the end of that scene, she's sort of moving still. She's gibbering. Um, <laughs> she's, she's dead. So he's sitting on his toilet. Xander Berkeley, this is an acting masterclass. He stands up, he washes his face, and we cut back to his new girlfriend, who in Helen's kitchen is making a steak and cutting it up, throwing it around the kitchen still. And he looks in the mirror and he utters the immortal line Helen! Helen! Oh, Helen! Helen! Don't say it one more time. Don't say it one more time, Trevor. Don't fucking do it. <laughs> and then you know. And then all the fucking strobe lights come on. <laughs> and then we see Helen. <laughs> through the mirror. Hello, Trevor. Come with me. <laughs> and she fucking rips him from gut to gullet. Groint, groint and to then gullet. Uh, the girlfriend of Trevor walks into the toilet with the knife in her hand with blood yep. all over it because she's been it's cutting up a steak. Yep. And she sees Trevor... Sander Berkeley just laying there with his eyes open with a load of like bright red blood all over him in the bathtub. <laughs> in the bath. Um, Brilliant. Great ending. Great ending. Hilarious ending because it's so, yeah. so bad. <laughs> it's really bad. It's like, he don't like, because he really draws out the Helens as well when he's saying them. He says, like, oh, come on, don't do it. Like, yeah, he's like, he's like, hello. Helen. Like it's so unnatural. Oh, like Helen. you wouldn't do that. <laughs> hello, no. Helen. Uh, Helen. Um, what's her name again? Oh, Helen. Helen. Uh, <laughs> Helen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's done it. Don't you do it? Don't you say it five times? <laughs> what a classic! So that was the Candyman. I think we uh, can wrap it up there. Um, I would recommend not watching it, but feel free to watch it <laughs> if you would like. There's a remake happening. I've just got to say, it's announced 2020. There's a trailer for it and everything. There's been lots of Candyman films since the first Candyman. I think there's been like I don't know, like three or four or something. But then, but there's a brand new. There is indeed, and of course, it is starring the amazing, amazing Yah Yah Abdul Mateen II, who was in the Trial of Chicago. Who we talked about yeah. earlier. He was also in the That's Watchmen right. TV show, which is brilliant again if you haven't seen it um so so he's he's gonna be in that um and it also it's written by jordan peele of get out and us fame 
So it, it it will be good. I'm sure it will be good. It will be good quality. Um, it, and apparently, it's a spiritual sequel. A spiritual sequel. Oh, it's a, sequel, a spiritual a sequel. So there may oh, yeah. be undertones continuing on. What a load of well. Jargon. Interestingly, Yaya Abdul Mateen is playing Anthony McCoy. So oh. he's going to okay. have some kind of relation to Anne Marie McCoy from the first movie, mm. I guess. Ooh. I want to see so it. Do I. Let's watch it right now. It comes out twenty twenty one, folks. <laughs> Um, so that was the Candyman in Video Store Corner. Um, had a lot of fun discussing it. Not as much fun watching it. Join us on the next Movie Mouth podcast for a classic slice of movie and TV related podcast fun. But before then, please do follow our Facebook and Instagram accounts at, at Movie Mouth Podcast and hit subscribe. Or give us a nice five star review on your podcast player of choice. Phil, yeah, just five last things to say oh yeah Candyman 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 Candy